Hi everyone, Sam here with a quick announcement. This is a special two-part episode, so right after my interview with Marshall, stick around. There's more Kitchen Table Magic interview goodness right behind it. I hope you enjoy. Welcome to Kitchen Table Magic, a storytelling podcast featuring the amazing people of the Magic the Gathering community. I'm your host, Sam Tang. Join me and my guests as we share stories about what MTG means to us, how we got started playing Magic, the ups, the downs, the hilarious stories, and everything in between. In this episode, I'm hanging out with Marshall Sutcliffe, creator and host of Magic the Gathering's most popular podcast, Limited Resources. Marshall is also the play-by-play commentator and host for premier Magic the Gathering tournaments such as the Grand Prix, Pro Tour, and the Magic World Championships. Marshall talks about his thoughts on the game and what he hopes to create in the future. Also, I brought a few packs for Marshall to crack open in true Limited Resources style. This is a fantastic episode, and I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Marshall Sutcliffe. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining me on Kitchen Table Magic. I'm your host, Sam Tang, and I'm here with a very special person today. Marshall, how are you doing? Doing well. Thanks for having me on, Sam. I almost don't have to introduce you because everyone knows your voice. (laughs) Yeah, they do end up hearing me quite a bit. (laughs) Well, Marshall, thank you so much for having me over. This is a very special opportunity to be able to sit down and talk to you. So everyone knows you from coverage. What is your official job title with coverage? Uh... I don't have one. Um, <laughs> so I'm a, the, the way it works is I'm a contractor. Uh-huh. So I'm a, I'm an individual contractor with, uh, that wishes the coast hires, uh, all of us are, uh, on the coverage team. And what that means is they hire me on an event by event basis. So I don't work for wizards of the coast. I'm not an employee of them and I don't have an official title with them. I just say I'm a play by play commentator for them. You know, that's what I do. Uh, I do work with them a lot. Like I, I have a really good working relationship with wizards. And uh, so it's not like I don't have any connection to them at all. As far as official work titles and that kind of stuff goes, I don't have one. I'm, I'm a mm-hmm. contractor. Yeah. Okay. Free as a bird. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, Marshall, I wanted to talk to you today about your life and have you share your story with the audience. I just want to ask you, where did you grow up and how did you get into magic? I grew up here. Uh, we're, we're sitting uh, in Seattle where both uh, Sam and I live. And I grew up in Seattle. Uh, I'm from here originally. And I've never actually moved away. I love it here. Most people do move away at some point. Um, I think I just got lucky to be born here because this is a really great part of the country and a really great city. And uh, I think at this point, I probably would have moved away had I... like I've given it a lot more thought since then. But after really looking at things... Um, I mean, there's a few places I wouldn't mind living, but Seattle, I, I love it here. So, I, I don't plan on leaving uh, necessarily. Uh, as far as magic goes, uh, I started playing kind of high school, just out of high school with my with my best friend, Jay Chow. And him and I would build decks and play against each other. He, he took a little more seriously than I did. I never played in any tournaments. I was really bad. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't really know the rules that well, but I was just fascinated by the cards and, and building decks. I, strangely, uh, you know, people know me now as a limited player, which is correct. That That is, you know, where I focus and what I love. But uh, back then, I liked brewing somehow. I had all these uh, crazy, terrible decks with just the cards that I owned. And uh, him and I would play. And uh, I also uh, met Ryan Spain. That's uh, that's Jay's cousin. And I taught him how to play Magic at that time. And then I stopped playing. Uh, you know, whatever. I, other things came up. I, I moved. And, you know, Jay and I kind of just didn't play as much anymore. And he was really the only one I played with. So, 
I still had my card somewhere, but it, you know, I think this story is is pretty routine at this point. Uh, you know, they ended up getting in the closet and uh, they stayed there collecting dust for a while. And I, I picked up poker. I, I was working, doing all this other stuff, school. And, uh, and then, I don't know, I guess it ended up being... 10 or 11 years later, uh, I came back to the game because Ryan, <laughs> Ryan Spain, uh, the person who I had taught to play, had actually uh, picked it up really hardcore and kept playing that entire time. And uh, we were playing in a poker game uh, at the time. And he, there's actually a super crazy story behind it. Do you want to hear it? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So, this is this is how I got back into magic. So, okay. Ryan, he he knew that I would like it again. He knew me. We had gotten much closer. He's kind of a mentor to me. He's also a friend, of course. But, you know, Ryan is, uh, you know, I, I started the podcast with Ryan. He was the yeah. one that, you know, we started Limited Resources with. And he uh, he's about six years older than I am, something like that, which puts him, you know, about one spot in life ahead, mm-hmm. right? Uh, you know, when, when I was in high school, he was in college. When I was in college, he was starting a family or looking to settle down and buying a house, you know, that kind of thing. When, when I was in junior high, when I met him, uh, when I first knew of him with my friend Jay, you know, he was at college. So, he was like this mysterious, you know, I had never actually met him. He would send us uh, mixtapes of, of songs and stuff we had never heard of and that kind of thing. <laughs> nice. Anyway, and, but, it, but by this point, Ryan and I were friends. We, we talked and we, we played poker together and he was somebody who had always kind of been an important role model in my life. Like he, he wasn't always a rat, like, you know, he wasn't somebody I was in contact with a lot, but I looked up to him. I still do. Uh, I, you know, I've learned a lot from Ryan. And uh, so, we were playing poker somewhat frequently. And the story is this, he <laughs> he wanted to work at Wizards and he, of course, was, you know, involved in the magic stuff on some level. And he uh, followed Forsyth, Aaron Forsyth on Twitter or maybe Facebook, I don't remember, but, you know, he was loosely kind of in one of his circles, but he had never met him or anything. And Aaron Forsyth is a big baseball fan. And Ryan had a couple of kids and Aaron's got three kids. And Aaron had put out a tweet or something that said something like, I used to like to play fantasy baseball because I love baseball and gaming and stuff, but I just don't seem to have the time with a career and the kids and all that kind of stuff. And he's like, and he just was saying that he was bummed about it. And Ryan had found himself in the exact same situation uh, a year prior or something like that. So, what he had done is started a fantasy baseball league where you draft teams rather than players. So, it's kind of watered down, but you still get a lot of the same experience. So, he decided on a whim that he would send a message to Aaron and say, hey, I know how you feel and I've got a league for people in our situation. Would you maybe want to join it? But, you know, at the time, you know, it's like sending your favorite you know, sports athlete, you know, like, <laughs> you know, uh, hey, LeBron, do you want to join my fantasy football team? It's like, no, right? Like, you know, <laughs> who cares? And, uh, and, and to his surprise, Aaron responded and said, sure, that sounds cool. So, they, they you know, struck up an acquaintance or, you know, a little bit of a friendship uh, through, through that. And, you know, he had his email address at least. And Ryan had mentioned that he worked at a game studio downtown here where we're at now. And he said that there was a bunch of magic players there. And Aaron was like, oh, uh, you know, do you want me to like send you guys some product? This is something that Wizards does and that, you know, if you're in a spot like Aaron's in, you can do where, you know, to kind of help promote magic, they'll send um, some boxes of cards and some lands and stuff to some of the local game studios to try to get them going on it because it's such a great way to introduce the game to, to gamers. And so Ryan's like, I'd be happy to, you know, send you some boxes or whatever. And Ryan's like, sure, that sounds sweet, you know. And and Ryan thought, well, maybe I could do a draft one night or, you know, a sealed something or whatever. Ryan comes into work a couple of weeks later and the receptionist is like, hey, you, you've got a shipment. He's like, 
what did I get? Like he wasn't expecting anything. He hadn't mm-hmm. ordered anything. They were like, I don't know. I've got a couple of big boxes. He's like, okay, well, I'll just, you know, send them over. So he gets them and they're from Wizards of the Coast and he opens them up and there's like cases <laughs> of magic cards in there. Cases. Cases. And he's like, what? And it turns out Aaron had said, okay, well, let's send these things over. And I don't know if he meant to send that much or if there was a mix up or what. I've never found out. We never asked. <laughs> <laughs> he just said, thanks a lot, you know, to, to Aaron for the nice gesture. Inside was, yeah, just tons of cards. Now, the type of person that Ryan is, is he's the type that wants to set up like a, he's a giver. Yeah. He's a facilitator. Yeah. So, he started a league with all these different ways to give the rares back. You would earn points and I'm talking about a sealed league where you'd get a sealed deck and then every week you'd get a new pack and he was doing drafts and, you know, he was providing all the product for free because he got it for free and finding ways to uh, redistribute the product back as prizes and, you know, he had spreadsheets and this is just, I mean, he's a game designer. This is how they think. Right. Well, a byproduct of that was that he had enough product that he could just do a draft whenever. You know, if if enough people wanted to at work, they could be like, yeah, we've got stuff. Let's do a draft. And so, Ryan started trying to get me to do it. And mm-hmm. he's like, you should do a draft. And I'm like, I don't really know what that is. I had never done one. I didn't even know how it worked. He explained it to me, but I'm like, that just sounds complicated. And then I don't know any of the cards. And also, I'm just like, I'm kind of like, I'm kind of over it. You know, like I had my time with magic, but like I'm, I'm doing poker now. I'm doing all this other stuff. I'm not, I'm not trying to, you know, tack with dragons or whatever. <laughs> and he's just like, I think you'll like it. And I'm just like, yeah, you're probably right, but nah. He's like, okay. And then like a week later, he's like, going to do a draft tonight. You want to do it? I'm like, nah, I'm good. You know, whatever. I just, I don't care, you know? And I, I just, I wasn't like vehemently against it, but I'm just like, I don't really want to take on a new hobby. And like, if I do like it, it'd be really annoying because I'd want to play all the time. And, and I don't really have the, the circle of friends or the, the structure set up to do that. So I'm just like, nah. And then he finally kind of pushed me over the ledge and, and got me to do it. And so I did a booster draft. I had to sit with somebody because I had no idea what I was doing. I remember, I think I played against a planeswalker. This is in Lorwyn. Had no idea what a planeswalker was. I didn't know what any of the slang meant. My opponents were saying things like, I'm going to swing. I don't know what does <laughs> swing mean? And, you know, I, I just had no idea what I was doing, but it, it piqued my interest. He was totally right. It just, it got something in my head about like, well, how does this work? So, I'd send him a message on Messenger while we were at work and be like, hey, this card, like, how does this work? And he would explain like maybe just some basic rules to me or, or how those things go. Or, and then I'd start to get strategic questions like, well, why would I want to do this? And, oh, that you can do it for this. And oh, okay, that's interesting. And then you know, I was looking at stuff online and just reading and then it started to grow and to grow. And all of a sudden, we were having conversations every day about it. And there was emails and he was giving me write-ups and I and he got me playing on Magic Online, which is which was, of course, that, that's actually where I started. I, mm-hmm. I, the first uh, draft I did besides that one, the first draft I did on my own was on Magic Online. It wasn't even in person. Then it snowballed, you know, th- then I never looked back. But that's how I got back. The truth is how I started playing Magic is I taught Ryan to play when I dirtled around with it. And then he taught me again when I came came back and uh, I have <laughs> I have definitely flown fully into the the rabbit hole after that. <laughs> <laughs> that is so interesting. It's a, a very uh, cyclical and very reciprocal nature. Yeah. This game. It, I always find that this game uh, talking to people that it's always being passed from person to person. It is. A real a real camaraderie is being built when people play this game. Yeah. And and that that was certainly true for us. And it is interesting too if you look back at that one-time investment from Aaron Forsyth. It's absurd. One of my best friends, Woody Woodrow Angle, he streams with me sometimes. I mean, he still play. He 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 has a GP top eight. Like, yeah, you know, he was in that poker game mm-hmm. that same day. 
There's another guy named Dave. There's a guy named Joe. There's There was, I don't know, seven people in that game that still play. Yeah. And that was in 2008. <laughs> like, you know, it, it seemed like a windfall at the time to get all those cases of cards, but we've definitely given it back, uh, you know, a hundredfold at this point. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Well, yeah. let's also not diminish the fact that Aaron sending off Maybe a box, maybe a case. Who knows what the accounting error will never know. <laughs> we'll never know. But it spawned Marshall creating limited resources that have touched the lives of probably millions of people, you yeah. know? So that's hilarious. And, you know, fun fact about uh, Ryan Spain, when I emailed him just to get in contact with you, um, he was like, yeah, so the, the MTG, the T is capitalized because I had a lowercase T. <laughs> and ever, <laughs> and that's ever, classic, Ryan. Yeah. And ever since he told me about that, now whenever I see it, I'm just like, that's, that T needs to be capitalized. <laughs> I, I had to ask that question recently as well. And uh, I, I didn't know. I'll, I'll admit, I did not know if it was supposed to be capital or not. Now I know it is yeah, capitalized. It is capitalized. So, it's, a, it's official. Now, <laughs> well, Marshall, I want to also ask you: When did you officially start Limited Resources? We started in uh, in 2009. It was I don't know August, September, something somewhere in that around that range. It was when Zendikar came out, and uh, you know Ryan and I had kind of kicked around the idea of making content. And uh, you know he wanted to work at Wizards of the Coast. That was a, a goal of his as a game designer and as a Magic player. That's the dream. You know that's that's the dream job. And I told him that I had heard a an interview with Tom Lapilli, who worked at R and D at the time, and and Tom had uh, written some articles about cube drafting and about mm -hmm. designing cubes. He said that he felt like that gave him a big advantage in the interview because the interviewers knew who he was already and had read some of his development philosophies by uh, looking at the cube. It gave them some insight into, does this guy know what he's talking about or not? Which is hard to relay in a one-hour interview. And I remember telling Ryan, you've got all this great, like you write me these 12-page emails breaking down this limited format, like we need to get you writing. And so, he started writing for a site called puremtgo.com. And they picked him up and, and you know, it's one, it's one of the smaller content sites. They're still going. And uh, he wrote for them and he wrote these fantastic articles. I mean, they were huge 12,000 word behemoths, you know, of, you know, w with pictures and breakdowns of plays and draft picks. And it really showed Ryan's, you know, kind of stance. And I'm obsessed with this idea that I can go down to a store and buy a laptop or a computer of some sort for a few hundred dollars, get some pretty basic recording equipment. You know, it, it's nicer if you have the better stuff, like, you know, your setup's great. And, uh, you know, I try to have the best stuff too. But the truth is, if you just want to put out a show that sounds decent, you can get a headset, you know, a gaming <laughs> yeah. headset and it'll sound, you can hear every word they say, right? And uh, I love the idea that you can go do that and then start something that reaches as many people, you know, from your living room. I mean, I recorded limited resources in my living room and I used the free program that came with my Mac. It's called GarageBand to edit it for two years. You know, I had a, a microphone that cost $60. You know, it, it was a decent mic, but it wasn't anything crazy. And I plugged it into my computer and I used the internet that I already had to talk to Ryan over it and we started something. And that idea always appealed to me. And so, I thought this would be a kind of a cool way to explore that and uh, and why not, right? I mean, if it if it fails, if nobody listens, if we don't want to do it anymore, no problem. You know, you just you just put it down and that's it. And so, I started talking to him about that and he, he was a little too busy to do a podcast. So, I told him I'd take care of all the other stuff. But uh, that's when we started. It was 2009 and it was uh, right as Zendikar came out, which was really fortunate, mm -hmm. uh, honestly, for us. Uh, the timing was couldn't have been better. Yeah. It, was, it was the beginning of the magic boom. 
That's right. It was. And I remember in one of your interviews, um, you were even talking about how listeners would say, you know, the long form is great. We want more. We want longer. Yes. That, that's one thing that I've gotten consistently feedback-wise. And I also have experienced this myself, which is that one of the beautiful things about podcasts is that they don't have to adhere to a specific pattern. Uh, traditional media outlets needed to make room for commercials at certain intervals. And therefore, you would have a scenario where you'd have a um, TV show that needed to be 21 minutes total. When you need to make room for commercials and have everything standardized, you have to cut stuff that you shouldn't. When you make a podcast, it can be as long or short as you want. Now, it's not that there's no penalties for that. If you make a five-hour podcast, there's only a certain percentage of people that are going to be able to listen to a five-hour... Let's say you make a five-hour daily podcast. <laughs> and let's say it's great. Yeah. It doesn't matter because nobody has five hours to sit there and listen to a podcast every single day. Right. They just don't. So, and if you make a 20-minute really great podcast, that's awesome. But, you know, maybe you could be making more. So, it's kind of up to each show to figure out where they fit. But the thing that I realized was, is that people, it's not like a TV show where you sit down and you watch it and it's like, I know when this is going to be over and then I'm going to go do something else. This is something that people use to fill their day, fill the time when they're doing dishes or walking the dog or fill the time sometimes when they're at work, you know, for people that have a job where they're not really communicating with people. You're doing outdoor work, anything like that, you can do it. When you're driving, you know, you, yep. you, you're, you're driving, you know, you got an hour commute. It's audio, which means that you can do other stuff while you listen to it. And it really, at least for me, it enhances my day. I mean, honestly, I just feel like I'm such a more well-rounded, more learned person after having started to listen to podcasts, which isn't about 2007 is when I started listening to them, maybe 2006. The editorial brain wants to edit things down to the necessities, to the things that need to be there. And it wants to cut away everything else. And that is how my brain works. Uh, I've been a photographer for a long time and I use that same method for photography. And uh, I carried that over into the podcast. But I've realized that, like you mentioned, after having asked multiple times that that's not really the idea. I mean, they don't want nonsense. They don't want you to be rambling on. But if you are giving good content, they want more. Right. And I do too. My favorite podcast, if they would release three extra episodes and they were all half an hour longer, I would fist pump. I would be like, this is awesome. Yeah. Right? You know, because the truth is, is that yes, there's a lot of podcasts out there, but there's always a few that really speak to you. You know, the ones that you look forward to every week where you're like, refresh, refresh, refresh. Oh, it's here. You yes. know? Yeah. And I would take so much more of that content if I could get it. And I just related to that. So I've stopped that. I, I you know, I don't try to purposely make the show longer just for the sake of it. Uh, I don't think that that's the way to go, but I do not try to truncate anything just out of the fear of of the show getting too long. I think people have made it loud and clear that they want more, not less. That's right. After speaking to so many different Magic players, limited is like leg day. <laughs> it's foundational. <laughs> Limit, <laughs> leg day. That's great. <laughs> limited is like is such a core aspect of the game. And you know, Marshall, earlier you were talking about cube. It's like you know, recently I've been thinking about um, when Wizards came out with this uh, make your own format thing, and then they also had the cube contest. Mm -hmm. It almost seems like every new set that they come out with, they're coming out with a brand new cube. Mm -hmm limited to be able to put players in that environment to think within these constraints, but also to be still adhering to the same rules and also to be coming out with new innovations and also to be using old techniques. Mm -hmm. It's very foundational. Oh, yeah, for sure. The thing about limited is is that it it tests basically all of the magic skills. It takes you through the constructed process. It adds an extra wrinkle into it and it compresses it down into, uh, okay, you have to do this right now. Uh, you know, when you think about making a constructed deck, 
you think about taking all the cards in a format, narrowing it down to the ones that you want to choose, you know, as a card pool for your deck, then building the deck, further narrowing it down to just the cards that you're going to play, plus the the mana base and all the considerations that go into that, and then playing the games. That that's the process. When it comes to limited, it's very similar. Uh, you open up a pack, you narrow down it to the card that you want to put into your card pool, and you do that repeatedly until your card pool is finished, and then you build your deck from that card pool. It's a very similar process, but you have to do it now. You're sitting there, and you've got half an hour or whatever it is to build that deck, and that's a much different experience. You don't get the luxury of, of going over gather one more time for anything you may have missed or for, you know, running some calculator numbers or, you know, anything like that. You have to just know how to do these things. And, you know, you have to use some heuristics and stuff in there, of course, as well. There's a lot that goes into selecting that one card. It's not just, well, I like this card, so I'll take it or, you know, something like that. It's not just a matter of picking the cards. It's also a matter of which cards might you get back and all this level of depth, reading the table, that kind of stuff. And to me, that's what makes it so great is that you have a lot of constructed players who are, for example, very good uh, technical players, but they don't know how to build a deck for anything. So they go online and they download the latest and greatest, and then they show up to a tournament and they'll do pretty well, but their skill set is narrow. They're a specialist. Mm -hmm. In limited, you can't be a specialist. You need to know how to boost your draft. You need to know how to construct a deck and you need to know how to play it. And if you are lacking in any of those areas, you're not going to be as good of a limited player as you can be. And it's that simple. Where if you're a constructed player, you can be a specialist. You really can. You can just be somebody who is great at building a deck or great at playing a deck and and limited just doesn't give you that out. And I love that well-rounded experience. It challenges you on multiple levels every time you sit down to do it. Some of the episodes that you've had with Rich Hagen talking more about theory, Mm. right? Bread. Right. And mm-hmm. then um, what was the other one? There's also quadrant theory. Yeah, oh, yeah. There's also visualizing is this card yours or theirs? Mm-hmm. I love that one. Yep. And I felt these really distinctive level up moments after listening to that kind of content. Mm-hmm. When it comes to that, like everybody has their own approach. Hagen brings a really interesting kind of psychological take to it that I think that most magic players don't consider. And it can be really helpful to take a look at uh, things under a different lens, which is why I really like having him come on the show because he's so different from our normal guest and he sees things in such a different way that you can take nuggets of information. You can take concepts from what he says and apply them, you know, under the framework that we would traditionally put forth on, on LR. You get so many concepts thrown at you as a limited player. I mean, one of our, I think it was our first or second episode of LR ever is called Breaking Bread. Mm -hmm. We thought that B-R-E-A-D acronym that nobody knows what it actually stands for after some point, uh, (laughs) namely the A, (laughs) is actually the opposite of what you should do as a limited player. The basic direction of it's fine. It makes sense. But it breaks down almost immediately, which is why we call that episode Breaking Bread. You know, if it's pack one, pick four, the bread analogy is gone. It already does not apply to you anymore and doesn't matter. And so we decided that, look, we're going to hold our listeners accountable, right? We're, we're not going to let you fall back on some cheap acronym to get you your decisions. You need to be willing to commit to this format and to say, no, this is a more complex, deeper strategic thing than any one acronym can get me. And, uh, and I'm going to take that on and, and we're going to work through it together on the podcast. And that was kind of, you know, sort of set the stage early for us as players, you know, as podcasters to sort of get that message out that, that we wanted to say, no, 
this isn't going to be easy, but it's going to be, you're going to get better and it's going to be rewarding. We're, we're going to show you how to do it. And for the listening audience, BREAD stands for Bombs, Removal, Evasion, Attackers, and then Dudes or Duds. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, I've heard the A be like six different things. And then, yeah, I've also heard Dregs. Dregs. Yeah. But whatever, you know, and, and, and that is, again, that's not an unreasonable hierarchy. It just doesn't work when you actually sit down to draft. Mm-hmm. Like, that's probably reasonable for a pack one, pick one. Mm-hmm. Well, that's not that bad. Like, I would probably take things in roughly that order. Mm-hmm. But once you have two cards in your pile and once you start to see where things are going, it falls apart immediately yeah. and it's just useless. So, you know, to me, you don't want to tell somebody, you don't want to give somebody a tool like that and have them sit down and and then look at pack two, pick one and go, well, I'm supposed to take this evasive creature, even though, you know, they're drafting some linear archetype that needs mm-hmm. specific pieces in place. And they're just like, well, this one has flying. I guess I'll take it. You know, it's like, <laughs> no, you're passing an artifact and your deck really needs artifacts yeah. or, you know, that kind of thing. That's where, you know, those type of things can make you feel kind of okay. But when you sit down to draft it, they, they fall apart so quickly. That is so fascinating. And also, Marshall, in addition to limited resources, you now have constructed resources. Well, not it's not new. I mean, you've had it for quite a while. But how has that dynamic been different, talking with the audience about constructed rather than limited? Yeah, it's a lot different for me. Um, you know, I play so much more limited than I do constructed. So, when we first started LR, uh, the, the setup that we wanted for the show, which reflected the, the real life at the time, which was that Ryan was teaching me. So, I represent the audience. I'm the audience member who gets a chance to ask a really good limited player questions and help guide the conversation. And so, when he would introduce a complex topic, for example, I would be able to ask follow-up questions that I thought that a a typical audience member would want to ask. As time went on, I got better. Uh, You know, I was working hard at getting better at limited, not just on the show, but on my own. And with subsequent co-hosts, it's been more equaled out. You know, I have my opinions, they have theirs, and we kind of have a dynamic where both people get to bring their their opinions and and stuff to the table, and we kind of hash it out from there, rather than the the learner and teacher type thing. When it comes to CR, it's back to the beginning. I have to lean on Eric. I mean, I'm not clueless on constructed. I've commentated, you know, hundreds of constructed matches. I've played a lot of constructed, but so I have a baseline understanding that's that's fine. But the depth that he possesses, I can't touch it. It's he's unbelievable at that kind of stuff, and I always feel very comfortable. You know, I, the way I like to view it, and I do this for when I'm in the booth too, is I view it like throwing hardballs. Uh-huh. Right when you're asking somebody questions in a setting like a podcaster in the booth, one of the big no-nos is to ask somebody a question that they don't know the answer to. It's bad. It makes them look bad. It makes you look kind of stupid. Like, why are you asking, you know, and they have to kind of wiggle their way out of not knowing it. And when you get in there and you get somebody on the, with the skill level and communication skills that Eric has, I can unleash on that guy. I mean, I can throw him at just the hardest slider, anything. I can throw him my nastiest pitches and he just consistently crushes everything I throw at him. And that is nice because, you know, because a lot of time when I'm in the booth, I'll know the answer to the question. I'm just setting them up to say it themselves. But a lot of times on CR, I do not. I'm genuinely <laughs> just like, is this even good? You know, and, and I can't wait to hear what he has to say because he breaks it down in a way that's digestible for our audience, you know, and I get to be uh, in that case, part of the audience rather than on LR where I'm more, you know, in that host role. How did you get Eric to be on your show? Um... 
a lot of begging. <laughs> no, it, you know, him and I had chatted before. We, we had become friends. And so, you know, he was somebody I was comfortable talking with and stuff. After John left, it was like, I, I was questioning whether I still wanted to do it. But at the time, you know, Eric was really like, he was in the spotlight quite a bit. Um, he was up for the Hall of Fame and that kind of stuff. And I, and I really liked kind of the direction he was going. And I wanted to work with him on something. And it just seemed like constructed resource. I mean, the, the truth is like, he's just an excellent limited player too. Like he could do either show. Right. Frankly, so could Louise. <laughs> but it just seemed like that was a good opening at the time. So I ran it by him and, and I had talked to Luis a little bit about it too. And uh, he thought it was a good idea as well. Eric was on board from the get-go. And uh, yeah, so I, I basically just asked him. It just seemed like good timing for him too. He wanted to get into making more content. That's awesome. And Marshall, going from podcasting and producing content and playing poker and kind of doing your day job, when did you transition into coverage? Coverage happened in kind of a cool way. Um, I had been doing the podcast for a while and in, a, in sometime around 2012. So, I guess I'd been doing it for about three years at that point. Um, and, it, and it had grown considerably. Um, not quite you know, to where it is now, but still it had, it had become a thing that people knew about rather than just some obscure little, you know, corner of the magic internet. And I always wanted to try out being in the booth. I remember being at a GP I was playing in and seeing a couple of the players that they had had come in to do some rounds in the booth. And I just remember thinking, I want to do that. That looks mm -hmm. sweet. Like, I bet you I could do that. That's what I thought to myself. Like, I bet you I could do that. I've never done anything like it, but I'm just thinking like, I think I could do that. But again, I was still just nobody, you know? And so, I got lucky. I'm curious, like you probably hear this all the time, right? It's just like the the circumstance stuff is just so absurdly crazy to think about, but <laughs> I just got very, very lucky on multiple levels. First off, I became friends with Brian David Marshall. Uh huh. That was random. He was at PAX looking for a, a booster draft, as he always is. And a mutual friend, John Lauks, who I used to do the podcast with, he knew he knew BDM and I knew of BDM because I watched him on the stream and stuff, but I had never met him. I was also going to a draft. I was actually, I, there was a draft I was going to and John knew this. So, he gave BDM my number. I get a phone call from some New York telephone number I've never seen before. I'm like, hello? He's like, hey. I'm like, hey. He's like, it's Brian David Marshall. I'm like, holy crap. <laughs> I'm like, cool. Hi. You know, what's going on? He's like, well, John gave me your number. He said, you were looking for a draft. And I'm like, or you were going to go to a draft. He's like, I'm looking for one. I'm like, absolutely. So I meet up with him and we walk to the hotel where the draft was going to happen. We chat the whole time, instantly get along with him. I mean, he's hard not to get along with because he's just so personable and funny yeah. and stuff, but also like him and I clicked, you know, right away. We had some really funny moments there too. Uh, I'm going to, this is an aside, but it's funny. Okay. So we're walking, it's late at night. It's like 11 and we're walking to a hotel downtown Seattle at night and there's a red, you know, do not cross sign. There's yeah. no cars out. Right. And we're walking. Of course I stop at the sign because <laughs> I'm from Seattle and in Seattle we stop at the sign. <laughs> And he stops with me and then he gives me a look like, dude, what are we doing? <laughs> and I'm like, well, I'm not even th we're just talking. Like we're having a conversation and he's just like, well, there's no cars or, you know, he's like, let's just go. And I'm like, oh, okay, sure. Whatever. And so we go because in New York, you don't even look at those signs. You know, yeah. you just look at if there's a car coming and that's it. And if there's not, you just go. And uh, a couple of years later, I actually went out to New York to visit BDM. And we were walking and he's like, all right, I'm going to teach you how this works. And I mean, he he, t he said, sometimes you got to stare them down. Sometimes you touch the hood of their car on the way by just to show them that you know you have power. 
And by the end of the trip, I was just burning through every light, like not even like, he's like, dude, I might've given you a little too much power here. Cause I was just like flying through these things. So yeah, th- that's an aside. Uh, but anyway, him and I hit it off. We did it. We did a booster draft and stayed uh, loosely in touch after that. Then a while later, later that year, whenever it was, um, I went to go play in a GP. I was playing in GPs at the time. In fact, I was starting to travel for them. I was getting better at magic. I was getting more comfortable with tournaments. And I started thinking to myself, well, Hey, this could be cool. Like I could, I could be a good magic player. You know, I could, I could go top eight to GP. I could go win stuff. And I was starting to get good. And I went to GP Austin. And when I was down there, I bumped into him and I said, Hey, how's it going, BDM? Nice to see you. You know, just had a quick chat. And he's like, Hey, we're doing coverage here. He's like, Do you want to come in and I can do an interview with you? You know, and I'm like, Oh, that's great. And he's like, Yeah, we'll put you in the feature match for round one, which is, you know, from a coverage perspective, the good players all have buys. Yeah. So, finding somebody that's notable to put in the feature match area is really hard in round <laughs> one because it's just like a bunch of people whose names you don't recognize. Yeah. Um, but when you get somebody who is a content creator, for example, who doesn't have buys or maybe a, a player that used to play a lot but doesn't play anymore, like those are the ones you want. Yeah. So, I got the uh, the much maligned round one feature match. I had no idea at the time that that's how it worked, but that's what it was. And then he brought me in the booth and we talked about the podcast. You know, he was like, hey, so you're like a podcaster and you've done this thing. And we talked a little bit about the format and some other stuff. And the interview went well. And I was like, that was cool. So I play the rest of day one and I ended up finishing X and two on the day. Nice. Yeah. Which is pretty good with no buys. This was in Estrad limited. And then, um, so I came back to, to, for day two at the time you needed a seven and two record to make day two. And I did my booster drafts and I went two, one, two, one. So I finished X four, uh, a solid finish, especially for me, that was the best finish I had had out of my, you know, th- that was my fourth GP or third GP or something. And so I was like pretty stoked about that. And then I bumped into BDM again. He said, how did it go? I said, I two, won both my drafts. It was cool. And he goes, well, here's the deal. He's like, do you want to come in the booth for the quarterfinals? And I'm like, what do you mean? I mean, you want to do another interview or something? And he's like, no, do you want to like come commentate with us? Just try it out. And I'm like, hell yes, I do. I'm like, that sounds awesome. He's like, great. He's like, come by in like half an hour and and we'll do it. And I went and got some food and I'm just like, Woody was there. And I'm like, dude, they're going to let me in the booth. Like, this is crazy, right? Like, this is, it was Rich Hagen and Brian David Marshall, like the two commentators for the pro tour. I'm just like, this is absurd. So there's two things that stand out to me from that day. The first one is what they did is it was limited and Raf Levy uh, had made the top eight. He was like the kind of biggest name. And so BDM said, what I want you to do is during the draft, I want you to sit behind Raf and watch him draft. And that way, when you're in the booth, you might have something to talk about. Like you could see some of the cards that he took or some of the strategies or what his deck's like. And you can, because I think BDM just, I mean, I was a complete unknown. We had no idea how I was going to do in the booth. Mm -hmm. If I was going to be comfortable, nervous, stuttering, quiet, too loud, you know, talks too much. And he wanted to make sure that I had something to say. And so I did. And the thing that I remember is walking over there, I just look, I just, I mean, I had my backpack. I just look like a magic player and I'm going in. And one of the judges comes over and stops me and BDM's kind of behind me a little bit. And he says, you can't be back here. This is, this is the top eight draft. It's only for the, the players, you know, in the draft, like, because, you know, the judge, they have to, they can't have random players sitting in the, in the feature match area uh, for, you know, many reasons. And, uh, and BDM comes up and goes, he's with coverage (laughs) or or no, he said, he's coverage. And I thought, oh, that has a nice ring to it. And so I got to go in there and I had my little notepad or my phone or whatever. And I, 
and I took notes and uh, and I watched him draft. I remember I remember he drafted blue white, and uh, which wasn't a great uh, color pair, but he made it work. He actually ended up winning. Anyway, and so I, the other thing that stood, stands out to me from that is that when I went in the booth and the camera came on and everything went on, I mean, I'd never been on camera like in any capacity. Like I had no experience with broadcasting, with live anything, with cameras, with any of it. None of it bothered me. I didn't think about it at all, which really stood out to me because that's just weird. Yeah. You know, like I get nervous in all the spots that most people get nervous, but for some reason, microphones and cameras have, I'm just nothing. Mm -hmm. They just, my meter doesn't, nothing. I wasn't shaky. It was just fine. And then when we got in and started doing the commentary, I had never done commentary in any capacity and it felt natural. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I just felt fine. I was like, this is a conversation. And like, I knew when to get out of their way, you know, like let them talk. And then when maybe I could say something that was relevant, I knew not to be rude and, and step on their feed and, you know, swear. So, you know, like I knew, it just clicked, you know? And I felt like I got along well with them. Like there was a nice dynamic in the booth again, where I was talking, but not too much. And the things I was saying were relevant, but not jabbery. And, and I remember thinking like that went actually, like, I was like, wow, that went better than I thought. Like I wasn't that bad at all. And so after the, that was for the quarterfinals, they let me go after that. They did the semis in the finals. But as it turns out, the coverage boss was there. And what was happening at the time, and this is where I say lucky. I mean, I got lucky to meet BDM on many levels because he's a close friend of mine as well, but also professionally. I got lucky that he cared enough to say, hey, do you want to come in the booth? And then I got lucky that the boss was there because he's the one that gets to decide who gets to go in the booth. And so he was watching. And then I also got lucky that this was a time when coverage was expanding dramatically. Yeah. And that meant that they needed bodies. They needed people that they could trust in the booth to do a good job and not screw things up and say things you're not supposed to say and make them look bad. You know how it is. If, if they're hiring at your work you know, and you happen to come in at that time, you can move up. That's just how it goes. And he came up and he said, hey, would you like to do more of these? I'm like, more of what? He's like, more GPs. We're going to be doing more coverage. Would you be interested in being like on the list for people that we put in? And I'm like, yeah, that'd be cool. And uh, he's like, great. I'll talk to you when we get home because, you know, of course, he lives here too working in Renton. And uh, that was it. And so I did, I don't remember how much later it was, but I did GP Seattle as my first event with, with Brian. And then uh, I got an email a couple of weeks later that said, hey, do you want to come do the pro tour? It was in Barcelona. And I was just like, what? Yeah. This is just crazy, right? And, yeah. and I found myself at the pro tour. And that's a whole nother world, by the way. I, I don't know if you want to get into that, but my God, that's a totally different thing. And I was thrown into that too. And all of a sudden, I was a coverage guy. I was doing coverage. It was crazy. That's amazing. And how was uh, GP coverage different than Pro Tour coverage, Marshall? So, there's a huge gap. Like the best way to illustrate it is just like way more money goes into the Pro Tour. Mm. So, when it comes to Grand Prix coverage, I can give you like a little history if you want. So, of course. Rashad started it. Mm -hmm. That's right? right. Rashad Miller started GG's Live, started working with Star City Games eventually to broadcast live magic events. He did that. He went out to the cities on his own dime. He worked out and bought all the stuff that he needed to, to broadcast on his own. He got his own commentators, his own everything, and he built something from nothing. And he started broadcasting magic tournaments. Eventually, Star City said, well, this makes sense because we're going to be doing our own tournament. So, we'll hire Rashad to do that. So, he did that for a while. They eventually started doing it on their own or whatever. But that's what it was. That's the genesis of GP level video coverage. Mm -hmm. Eventually, he started working with alongside Wizards of the Coast to do their GP coverage. So, he was using his equipment, but contracted from Wizards of the Coast to do it. 
And one of the constraints, for example, is how much stuff can Rashad fit in the suitcases that he's allowed to check? <laughs> okay. This is literally one of the deciding factors to how GP coverage starts. And again, at the time, it wasn't GP coverage. It was Rashad's GG's live stuff. But I mean, that's what we're talking about here. So we're talking about budget and small. That those are the things that you want because you can't have this huge TriCaster computer in your suitcase. It doesn't work. You know, we had chairs in front of us with movie cameras clipped to them. You know, no tripod, just it was a backwards chair, you know, with some duct tape. And, you know, th this is the type of stuff that we were dealing with. You know, our news desk or our desk or whatever is just a table that magic players would play on with two of the chairs that the magic players would play that we just stole off of the floor and put over to the side. The backdrop, you know, was some hanging drape thing. And eventually, you know, they got some more professional ones. But these things were budget minded. You know, they were one person show minded type stuff. When you go to the pro tour, it, replacing Rashad and like one Rashad assistant are like 70 people. Oh my goodness. 70 minimum. We have two complete broadcast studios at the pro tour. The amount of effort and time and sheer labor that goes into the pro tour is staggering. When we get to the pro tour, we have a stylist that puts makeup on us. Everybody there calls us the talent because that's the industry term for the on-air people, on-air talent. That's what we're called there. It is staggering, the difference. It, it feels nothing the same as a GP. Uh, it is just completely on a different level. It's also a lot harder because there's multiple cameras, there's multiple things going on. Everybody's zipping around everywhere. You really need to know where you need to be. You need to know what's going on. And, uh, and the production quality is a lot higher too. It just is, you know, I mean, our main job at a GP is to get those matches out so that you get to watch them. And we want the production quality to be high, but you know, especially at the time it's come a long way, but especially at the time, I mean, the baseline was get the stream up and running and keep it that way, Yeah, you know, cause that was hard enough as it is. And at the pro tour, that's just not, it's just not even the same ballpark. It's 15 or 20 times more, you know, stuff and people and equipment and all that. I know that the coverage team is trying to do a lot of different things to innovate magic coverage. I saw in one of the more recent pro tours that they did this little camera spinny thing. I made a funny video about oh, yeah, it. Yeah, I saw your video. That was great. There is a lot of space to innovate, you know, like camera angles, how to zoom in. And there's always mm -hmm. issues of cards being small and things like that. What are some things that you'd like to see in terms of improving coverage or, you know, things that are outside the box? Maybe some things that your bosses may not be ready yet to do. Well, I think the teams thing was a big push. I really think that like giving people a rooting interest is a big deal uh, and something that they can relate to. Uh, you know, when I look at teams that I root for, I often find myself relating to the way that the teams carry themselves. And I don't just mean magic. I mean like in sports and stuff like that. You know, you'll, you'll see differences in personalities of teams. And I think that that was a major, major step for them uh, for the Pro Tour. That's something I want to see. Uh, one thing that I really like and I'd love to see even more of is uh, segments that we do right now with Brian, with Brian David Marshall, where he goes out to one of the testing team houses and they do interviews with the players and get an idea of what it's like to be a, a pro player testing for the pro tour. I want to see one of those for every team. Those things are hard to make. They're, yes. they're time intensive. And, yeah. But the, you know, we do one team per, but I would love to see those for all of the major teams, every pro tour. You know, yeah. I'd love to see those type of things uh, going all the time because- like interviews like this, th this gives you a chance to see behind the scenes. 
right? You can ask me anything you want and you can give your listeners a look at what it's like to be like a content creator like I am for magic, right? What the reality is because it never matches what people think, mm-hmm. right? And and so, you know, they just, oh, you get to go around and do these things. It's always like a mix. It's a, there's good things and bad things and all that kind of stuff. And I think people want to see that about the players on the PT as well. We've been playing around a lot with the feature match area, the viewing area, when you go to the Pro Tour, there's usually, in fact, every time there's a viewing area for the players that aren't playing anymore or for spectators that want to come in. I'd either want to get rid of it entirely or go all the way with it. I'd either want it to be a big space where people can watch or say, look, this is for the stream. We're recording for the stream. If you want to watch this, you just have to get on your computer and watch it. Mm-hmm. Because to me, like, you know, I don't think it, it sounds weird to say because of what I do, but I don't think magic's a good spectator sport. I think it's an awful spectator sport, in fact, uh, much like poker was. And what needs to happen is, is you need to be able to introduce technological innovations that make it more interesting. Mm-hmm. And what poker decided to do is they got these, they call it a whole cam. Mm-hmm. You know, these little, they call them lipstick cameras. They're just, they, you know, at the, in the early 2000s, they were considered very small cameras that they could build into the poker table so that you could see what the hands of the players were. I remember that. Yeah. And this was one of the many factors that ushered in the poker boom because it made poker something that you could watch on TV. Poker also took it one step further. Most of the content that you saw in the early days of poker TV and the boom was heavily post-produced content. They would record 30 hours of stuff and make an hour, an hour, two hour show out of it. So they'd take only the really good stuff and only the really interesting hands and even the really interesting hands, they'd edit down so that it was happening a lot faster on your screen than it happened in real life. Because they correctly realized that a bunch of dudes staring at little pieces of paper on a table is not fun. <laughs> even if there's a lot of money on the line, even if the, the only really fun parts are when people win or lose or if somebody does something crazy. Yeah. And in Magic, we have a thankfully a much more rich game than that that is more fun to watch unfold. So, we're kind of in the middle. And I really like the strides that we've made as far as getting the hands up on screen. We do that now at the Pro Tour. That's a, that requires an, an entire person per player to do. That is a very heavy lift as far as that goes, but it's great. I mean, it gives you more information about what's going on. It lets us, the commentators, uh, have more information as well. These are the type of things that I want to see because I don't want to fight the fight that a lot of people do. I've read articles and seen stuff from people that compare Magic to League of Legends and these type of things, and I just find that laughable, to be honest. I do. I I don't understand how anybody in good conscience can say, we need to be like them and still recognize that we're not like them. In my mind, magic is a second monitor type stream. When I do my commentary, I try to make sure that I'm saying most everything that's going on on the board so that if you're not eyeballs on the screen, you can kind of keep up. Because when I watch it, I'm drafting and it's on my other monitor on the left. And I'm watching it, you know, I'm not not watching it, but yeah. it's not that I'm not just going to sit down with a bowl of popcorn and watch magic commentary because you know what ends up happening is in tough positions, players just sit there and stare at each other or stare at the cards or stare at the board. And it's just boring. If you've ever muted a magic stream, it's horrific. You can't <laughs> even watch it, you know? And, and, and that's why, I mean, you know, obviously I, I take a lot of responsibility for that because I know that the commentators are a huge key piece of the puzzle on why things are interesting and explaining what's going on. And I take that, well, obviously I take that very, very seriously because I feel 
that magic is a game that is so stagnant on the screen that you have to fill it with other stuff. But the idea, like if you've ever muted a game of League of Legends, there's infinite stuff going on on the screen. Mm-hmm. You don't need a shout caster in your ear to make that look cool or exciting or to be able to look at the different metrics and, and the things that are happening. Um, it, it just adds to it when you put the person in. But in magic, it's critical. It's just absolutely critical. You just can't not have it because it's a card game and it's not a fast paced card game either, mm-hmm. you know? And so, you know, for me, I, I think that like magic's on a good course. I think we have to realize as a group that what we have here is a beautiful, great game that appeals to a certain type of person and a certain type of audience. But I think the notion of comparing us or even trying to chase after entities like League of Legends and Dota and stuff is, I think it's just the straight up wrong approach. I think that what ends up happening is you start hurting the game. Imagine if the people who run baseball were like, we need to be more like football. Mm -hmm. What are you going to do? Like you have to change baseball to be more like football or more like basketball. You have to like tell players, well, you have to, you, you have to pitch within five seconds. And, you know, there's these shot clocks or these pitch clocks or these things where there's just no downtime. Yeah. And like, even then, all you're doing is increasing the pace on something that's still a stop and go type situation. And, you know, I would never want to see that. Baseball is a beautiful game. And you know what? It appeals to a certain type of audience that wants to kind of have a sandwich, crack open a beverage, and have a baseball game on in the background. Yeah. And sometimes you get really into it and sometimes you're not. And that's kind of the pace that magic has. And I think that that's okay. I think we just need to realize that that's a constraint to the game as it sits right now. Now, digital stuff going into the future could change that. That, yeah. you know, you get like into that Hearthstone range where when you watch Hearthstone, it is visually appealing. Again, I think you can mute Hearthstone and still watch it and be like, cool, there's some stuff going on. Like I flew over, I can see how many creatures, everything's on the screen. But Magic as a physical card game doesn't, doesn't afford us that. So, you know, to me, the technological stuff is important, but I don't think that any of these are going to be like a thing that we look back and say, remember when we increased our viewing audience by 10 times by making this one change? I, I don't see that happening. Mm-hmm. I don't yeah. want to be a pessimist, but I don't see it happening. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, there's lots of different technological things that lots of people have thrown around. I've read ideas about, you know, using a particular color playmat so we can treat it like a green screen. So, mm. just like football fields, yeah. right? Yeah. They put the, the, the clock or something or to put an overlay so so that players can see, you know, what phase you're in or something yeah. like that or, yeah. you know, uh, like different animations. But like, there's a lot because then you're going to have to add three more people that are just going to control what that one sure. animation. I mean, it's it's a lot of layers. Yeah. And there. I mean, that would be cool. Like if we could have a digital representation of everything that's happening on the screen, I would love it. <laughs> I would. I think that AR. would be, <laughs> a yeah. lot of augmented reality. <laughs> yeah. Something like that or just its own screen that just reflected the things that the players were doing. I mean, I, I would find that kind of interesting. But... Um, and, and, you know, you said, I don't have to consider, you know, budgets or anything here. So, that would be one thing that could be pretty cool because making it digital does make it more visually appealing, I think. Um, and it also makes it more accessible. You can just see stuff better, uh, especially if it would be interactive. If you could zoom in on a card from home and not have it zoom in on the, on the stream, that would be cool too. Um, I mean, if I was Wizards, I think I would lose a little bit of, or I would be uh, worried about losing a little bit of the marketing benefit of it, of watching people play with actual magic cards, I think probably does resonate more than we realize, but whatever, you know, yeah. it's still all magic. I don't think they complain too much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, Marshall, this is really interesting because the old adage goes, play magic, see the world. Mm-hmm. And you've really metagame that into broadcast magic, yeah. see the world. 
you have basically the one of the biggest pillars of a dream job in this community. Mm-hmm. You know, how do you feel about that? Well, that's interesting to me. I mean, I ended up here. Like I, I, I didn't. It wasn't like I, I quit my job and said I, I I have a dream job and it's what I do now. It happened slowly over time to get to where I'm at now and to sort of look around and see you know what I've got. And for me, I treat it like a job. I don't know. I I'm happy about it. I like what I do a lot. But traveling's hard. You know, you I travel twenty something weekends out of the year. I'm gone. I'm I, I got back yesterday from the East Coast. You know. I, I'm leaving in another week for Orlando and then San Antonio and then I'll be in Nashville. I'm going to Japan. You know, that part of it catches up to you. Interesting things that happen too, like when you're a creative person, which I consider myself, meaning that I make stuff, Mm -hmm. right? Like make a video, make a podcast, you know, there's this pressure that says you must do this all the time. And like when you had a bad week or something went wrong in your life, it doesn't stop for that. And it's really hard. Like when I worked in the corporate job, I could just go in there and zone out if I needed to. I could go in there and, you know, not really think that much for a day if I had a re- something on my mind that was really, you know, I could just sort of autopilot through the things I needed to do and then just kind of office space my way out of there at night, you know? And now it's just like, no, like you don't want to stream. You don't want to be on the air. You don't want to create content. You don't want to come up with a topic. It's like, sorry, that's what you got to do. You know, so I treat it like a job in that way, like where I look at it, like, no, these are things that are important to me and to other people. And then I need to make sure that I tailor my my life around making sure that I can do the things the way that I want to do them. The upside is awesome. It's fantastic. I mean, I've always considered myself one of the luckiest people, period. And that has only increased with this stuff just because like I get to do the stuff that I want to do as far as the creating stuff. And that's a really big deal to me. The job I had before was not like that. And it it really made me miserable. And now when I have a good idea I get to make it work. And and I think that that's like something that's really lucky. I don't think that I, – I, I mean, I worked most of my adult life until I quit without the ability to do that. And mm-hmm. now that I have that, I'm like, wow, like this is so much more empowering. It feels so much better. I get to be a positive influence. You know, th- that's probably the biggest thing is that like it's tough because, you know, you never want to overstate stuff like this, right? I mean, I have perspective. Like you and I, Sam, like we talk about magic. It's like probably not that important, right? There's a lot of stuff going on. <laughs> mm-hmm. And there's a lot of important things in everybody's lives. Life can be pretty tough sometimes. And magic perhaps isn't, you know, on that short list of the super important things, you know, when it comes down to it. But at the same time, you know, making something that makes somebody's day a little better or that gets them through a tough time. I've gotten emails and stuff that said, look, I had a tragedy happen in my life. And, you know, listening to the podcast kind of helped keep me grounded and helped keep me distracted if I needed it and, and kind of moving forward. And, you know, we've also had people because, you know, Luis and I like to try to dovetail some of our topics about how to be a good limited player and how to be a good person or a better person, you know, how to approach life in a meaningfully better way, you know, and we're not trying to preach, but when it, when it's relevant, we'll, we'll bring it up. And, you know, when people send us feedback and say, hey, this helped, that was real. Like, I feel like that changed me a bit, you know, you feel that like, you know, you get this sense that you're doing something that's positive for the world. That's good. That's adding you know, to the world in some level. I mean, that's just irreplaceable. You just can't, you know, I I never got that from any of the other stuff that I did. And now I'm just like, that's, I don't want to let go of that, you know? And so, you know, I get to whine about the travel here and there um, and about the the fact that there's like a lot of pressure, but like it, it, none of that stuff weighs 
in anywhere comparable to the fact that I get to to create stuff that makes people just like a little bit happy, you know, over and then, you know, you compound that out over, you know, however many people and it's like, that's really impressive. Like, it's great, you know, and I've always had that feeling like I was talking about before about, I just, I find it wildly empowering that we live now. Like, it's funny because it, it really wasn't that long ago that this stuff was completely out of reach. If you or I, Sam, wanted to, to start something new uh, content-wise, we would have to go to school for broadcasting and then we'd have to go through this long slog. Let's say you and I wanted to do a radio show together. You know, we would have to start off in somewhere in nowhere in Nebraska doing the midnight shift, you know, spinning, <laughs> spinning records. Being a production assistant. Yeah. And then eventually we'd get our own shot at night and then eventually we'd move up to like a mid-level uh, station. And then eventually if we were really good and if the timing worked out and nobody hated us and we, <laughs> yeah. you know, then we could eventually get on some type of radio show in a, in a, in a big market or whatever. I mean, frankly, that's just not an advisable thing to do. You have to move around all the time. You don't get paid well. So, you're scraping by for years and years and years. And then you have to get lucky just to get to the point that you know you want. And now, like I said before, you can go to Best Buy and you know spend a few hundred dollars that you saved up and you can start something. And if it's good, it will grow. And that's what you've done. And, and that's what I did. To this day, I still get excited about that, you know, and I'm working on some new projects now and I'm just like, this is just ridiculous. And on top of all of that, I've been able to make it into a career too, which is, again, I, I consider myself one of the luckiest people. And this is another reason is that like, you know, people support me. I mean, they choose, there's no pressure. They choose to help me facilitate doing these things and keeping these things coming, you know? And like I said, I, I get to whine a little bit about, you know, too many hotel rooms, but none of it holds even a, you know, small flame to the upside of, of being in this position and meeting all the people I've met and, and all that kind of stuff. Absolutely. I totally hear that. Marshall, you know, you're like in this very rare position where you are dissecting almost every angle of the game at any mm -hmm. given time. You're yeah. talking about sets and cards and set reviews and draft strategies. And then you're going to GPs and the formats are changing and the decks are changing. And what's it like to almost be talking and thinking about Magic 24-7? It's something that like I'm actually wary of. Like... <laughs> I keep thinking in my head, I better, I better make a little space there or put a week where I'm like, no magic this week. Like, I just don't want to get burned out. But the truth is, it just hasn't happened. I just, I find this game just sort of endlessly fascinating. And look, I mean, I do feel a little differently about it now than I did like when I first came back. I've seen enough of the patterns and the cards and the stuff to kind of be like, okay, I know what's going to happen. I know how this is going to go. So, I, I, I've lost a little of that, you know, like, yay, a new card. But at the same time, like I look forward to every set that comes out. I am genuinely interested and fascinated by the way that these sets interact with each other and what's going to happen next. I think that that's like one of the biggest strengths that I actually have. And the truth is, is that it's not a strength that I worked on or that I developed. I'm just, uh, was born like that or I've always been like that, which is that I'm really curious, genuinely curious person. And that is the type of thing that helps out a lot for this because it means that you're much less likely to get jaded or to get bored because I'm really fascinated by all of these things and I don't have to fake it. And if I did, I think I probably wouldn't be doing the show anymore just because like, I mean, when you look at it, I, I've said a lot of the things I need to say, right? I, you know, I've covered the topics I need to cover. I've kind of made my point. This is how I think you should approach limited and, and gaming and life in some ways. But I really like getting into the nitty gritty and it means something to me. And I realize that, and in my mind, I kind of have a mission, right? Where like, 
the listeners that didn't listen when I said this stuff before, and even the ones that did need to hear it again. This is the right way to do this. This is the correct, you know, approach. This is how you should be thinking about things. And I want to hammer that into people's head. I want to say, you know, look, you you can you can be better, you know, as a result of this. So, yeah, it is interesting. I as much as I've worried about burning out, it's just never happened, so I I don't think it will. Marshall, one thing that you said earlier, you've seen a lot of these things over and over again. Yeah. Um when I interviewed Mark Rosewater, he was just like, I can't tell you what's coming up. But the next set is going to make you go wow. And the next set after that is going to make you go wow. And this was before we saw too much of Kaladesh. And this was also before we saw anything of Amonkhet. From your standpoint, what set would you like to see? Or where would you like us to return to? I don't want to return anywhere. I don't like returning. Uh, I think... I think I like the, oh, we're going to go back to wherever from a nostalgia standpoint and from like a conceptual standpoint. But when it actually comes up, I don't like it. Mm. You know, I don't really care about the flavor stuff. So, you know, seeing a new world or a new thing develop to me is is shrug. It's like, that's kind of cool. Like, I can mm-hmm. appreciate you did something neat there. But I've got so much on my plate to figure out what the cards actually do that I just don't have the bandwidth to be like, who is Sahili Rai? Where is she from? <laughs> what does she do? You know, I'm just like infinite combo, huh? Right. That, that's where I'm at on it. Um, um, I'd want to see them push us in directions we haven't gone. I'd want to, I want to go to new places. Um, I do have one weakness though. Mm, let's hear it. So I think my favorite set, at least conceptually, is Arabian Nights. Okay. I loved it when they made real world references or referenced things in the real world, which they don't do anymore. I, I always thought that that gave the cards kind of a mystique to them uh, when they were named after real places like. Uh, you know, Library of Alexandria or, or things from, from the Arabian Nights writings and stuff like that. And that is a, a world – also, I think it's the best set symbol in the history of magic is mm-hmm. the, the the sword on Arabian Nights or whatever it's called. It's Simitar, like a scimitar or scimitar, something. Yeah. And uh, I would love to see them go back there. Okay. I would. I, I can't lie. Uh, I, I'd like that. And, you know, perhaps Amonkhet, like as far as I know, it's like an Egyptian theme or something. At least that's kind of what I'm seeing. So, maybe we'll get a little bit of, you know, deserty stuff. But it, I, I'd like to see them go specifically back to like an Arabian Night style set. And I know that they never will. Uh, <laughs> I mean, they've said it. Like, look, we, we don't do real life stuff anymore. This is a fantasy yeah. card game. And that's fine. I, I get why they did it. But, you know, if you're asking me, that, that's where I want to go. That's pretty cool. That's very cool. As long as I get a set symbol again. <laughs> as long as you get another sword looking set symbol. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you have um, some other hobbies that you have talked about. You've talked about poker. Have you ever played poker with Efro or David Williams or anyone really good at poker? I've played poker with many players who are very good and some famous ones as well, um, you know, that are on TV sometimes and stuff. But I've never... I'm trying to think. I don't think I've ever been at the same table with Dave or Ephra before. No. Uh, both of them tend to be uh, tournament players, and I'm not. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, both of them play uh, higher level stakes than I do. Mm-hmm. So, the chances that like it would have to be almost like a friendly game mm-hmm. uh, for the most part. Or if we um, got, I would say it unlucky, at least for me, uh, to get at the same table as one of them at like a World Series of Poker event. Because mm-hmm. uh, I do play a few of those. They play a lot more of them than I do. Uh, again, being tournament players, but I always get talked into playing a couple of those every summer. Um, I don't really like tournament poker that much. I prefer playing cash games. But anyway, uh, but there's so many people that play in these tournaments that that, him, that one of them and I getting at the same table would be very unlikely. I don't think it's ever happened. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, like I said, I've played it with some good players, uh, some you know really good players in cash games. 
um, in Vegas before that I'm like, oh, I know that guy, you know, uh -huh. like from TV or whatever, but yeah. not, but not those two. Yeah. yeah I would yeah. though. I mean, I'd love to play with them. Mm -hmm. They're just such, you know, they're great players and great competitors and great guys. So it would be sweet. Mm -hmm. I'm friends with both of them too. Yeah. So, yeah. So you guys talk about magic and these talks, talk a little bit about poker. Yeah. We talk a little bit about poker, but not for the most part. I mean, the truth is, is that where poker's at now is at a level that the players have gotten so good and have really surpassed anything that, uh, you know, people really saw coming like in the mid 2000s when the poker was really, really booming that there's not as much to talk about with it. With both of them and I are kind of grizzled veterans of the poker scene. Uh -huh. And you lose the desire to talk about hands at some point. <laughs> now, there's some interesting ones that you might want to bring up, but it's hard to explain. You know you're with a poker player that's been playing seriously for a long time because there's certain types of stories that just lose their luster because you've heard them so many times. Mm -hmm. And all three of us are in that boat. Mm -hmm. So, we usually just talk magic or sports or whatever when we uh -huh. hang out. Yeah. That's very cool. <laughs> and Marshall, also from the past, you used to paint altars. Yeah, I did. Do you still paint? No. Uh, I mean, I still have my stuff to do it. But it was funny because I thought I, – I, I painted those um, when I still was working in the office. And uh, I, I always just wanted to try painting. I just thought, well, this then this would be a cool way to do it where I'm kind of like half painting but also like it's guided painting, you know, because yeah. it wasn't just like me just sitting in a blank canvas going like, well, I'd like to paint a flower. But <laughs> and, uh, and so, I started doing those just for fun and I really enjoyed it. In fact, I, I really do still enjoy it. But the thing is, after I quit, I thought I'd have way more time to do it. And it turns out that running your own thing takes way more time than any nine to five. You know, doing the LR stuff, managing the Patreon and, and all the, and the videos and the articles and all the other stuff that I do is incredibly time intensive compared to just getting up and going to an office job, which I didn't anticipate. I thought I'm free as a bird. And so I basically stopped doing them at that point. And I did a few, I've done probably three or four since then, but I haven't, I haven't in a few years now. Yeah, well, I, I've seen pictures of them. They look great. Thank you. I appreciate yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, I really enjoy doing them. I, I'll probably do it again at some point, but it's just a time thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was really impressed, especially earlier, Marshall, when you were like, you know, I, I'm a very curious person and, and I like doing creative things. And it's just like, you know, you're always wanting to express yourself in one way or another. And you were like, hey, I've got some paintbrushes. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to paint. This is, looks great. And then you're like, hey, now I have a podcast. I'm going to go yeah. create content. No, you're totally right. That, that That is a lot of what motivates me is is expressing myself. Or, and it, it's kind of like, I, I'm a big fan of like design and like efficiency and like, like when I think about expressing myself, it's not like um, me, you know, it, it, it's not like I, I don't want to put Marshall in front of everybody. I don't have an ego on that level where I think, well, you need more Marshall in your I, I don't think like that. What I think is I want to show people what I think is good and what I think is right. Like, so you can show me anything, you know, I mean, the watch I'm wearing, I, I think I ma matters to me. Like what kind of cars you like, or, you know, I want to show you, this is what I think a car should be, mm -hmm. right? It, it's not me. It doesn't have a picture of me on it, but it's like that represents my, my standards, my ideals, my sensibilities. Mm -hmm. And when I make content, that's what I'm doing. When I made LR, I said, I want to make the podcast I want to listen to. This is what podcasts should be in my opinion, Right. Uh, they shouldn't be how they were at the time, which was kind of crappy. It was just, you know, people turn on one microphone in a room full of five dudes and they all just talk about the tournament from last weekend, talking over each other. You can't hear anything, not not professional, you know, and and bad sound quality, all these things. And I'm just like, this isn't, this doesn't represent what I think a podcast should be. And, and then when we started one, I thought, well, I'm going to make the one I want to listen to, which is 
to the point, has takeaways. It's teaching you something. It's not, you know, it's for you. It's not for the host because a lot of times, you know, people start content so that they can put themselves out there. You know, you didn't start your interview podcast to have more Sam Tang in people's ears. No, absolutely not. Right. (laughs) You're facilitating other people, right? And and because that's your sensibility. And, you know, when it comes to me, it's the same thing. I wanted to put forth something into the world that represents, and it's the same thing when I'm in the booth. The way I commentate is the way I think you should commentate. Not the only way you can do it, but I think that's the right way to do it. And I strive to get to that. The altars are like that too. I tried to be clean with them and, you know, do the best I could. I I never put like cartoon characters on them. Not that I don't think you should, but like, this is what I think is cool about altars is the, is the art extensions and doing that kind of stuff. And so that's, that's what I did. Again, it's not exclusionary. I I don't, I I don't mean to say that you can't do it other ways, but I do have a vested interest and a passion in, in showing people what I think is great. It's just that, I'd rather take myself out of the equation in most of those scenarios. It's just you can't in some of it, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And another piece of creative outlet that you've been working on recently is the Marsh Log Blog Cliff. Oh, yeah. And uh, we have three episodes now. Mm -hmm. And it's great to be able to see you getting from point A to point B because we always see you at the destination, but we never really see any other facet of your life. So, I think they're wonderful. Thank you. Yeah. Those are a big... uh, Those are really hard for me. Uh-huh. Um, I did the first one because I was challenging myself last year to get better at video editing. And I set some goals for myself. I did kind of a, um, you know, like a New Year's resolution. And I don't really do those. But one thing I do want to accomplish this next year is I want to get into video editing. So I signed up for a website and I started taking classes and I started trying to improve at it and get really into it. You know, like get a program and get try to get comfortable in it. You know how hard that can be. But it once is, you get yeah. into it, you feel this empowerment thing. So, at the time, I had taken a full, like a pretty long course and I was starting to kind of get it underneath me, but I had all this fresh information in my head and nothing to apply it to. Mm -hmm. So, I said, all right, I'm going to start some projects. I'm going to do some stuff. And so, one of the things I did is I said, I'll try one of these vlogs that everybody's doing, but I just wanted to do it as a practice run for a shooting on the run, like on the go. I also did like a like I, I, of course, didn't put this in LR, but I did a, um, I did a, a birthday for my stepdad for his 65th birthday. I interviewed a bunch of people at his birthday party and put in some clips and I did that. I didn't have a reason. I mean, obviously, I wanted to do something for my stepdad that was nice, but like I wanted to work on stuff. So I thought, oh, this will be cool. I'll give him this. And the vlog was that. It was just like, I'll just try this out. It'll just be fun. I was just going up to Vancouver or to uh, Victoria, BC mm-hmm. for the weekend. I thought it'll just be a quick one. And then the problem is I put it up and people were like, this is awesome. We want more of this. And I'm like, oh no. (laughs) And I did this actually with a few different types of uh, stuff. I did a a thing where I sat down with Luis and him and I went over a match that he played at the Pro Tour uh, years ago against uh, Gabriel Nassif in the finals of a Pro Tour. And uh, people loved it. They were like, this is cool. Like we get the sort of behind the scenes director's cut, director's commentary type thing uh, where we can get into the plays and talk about what the player was thinking and all of that kind of stuff, you know, and I thought, oh, God, they, re- they really liked that. That was cool. And I started doing these depth check videos too, where I do post-produced draft videos that are, you know, about half an hour long. And I go really deep on a few plays and I've, I've got them all set up on that. The Marshall Hawk Block Cliff is just part of that. But I faced a, a tough spot. Those take me 
forever. <laughs> oh, no. So, you know how I was just saying um, before that I really like the idea, like I, when I put stuff out, I want it to meet my, like I want it to be like, this is what I think this should be. Right. Right. Now, I don't have the skill set with video to, to make it exactly how I want, but it's close. Like it's, you know, at least within my realm, it's it's where I want it to be and what I think these things should be. And that means attention to detail. And that means when I'm editing, I'm editing, editing, and it takes me hours, 10, 12 hours, you know, of just grinding on this thing. Now, part of that's because I'm still learning, to be fair. I will uh, speed up with those. But part of it's just because it's slow, it's hard, it's clunky, it's, you know, video editing. There's a reason why it's expensive and difficult to do, you know? So, yeah, I've actually been recently exploring the option of an outlet for mm. these video projects. And, uh, and I, I have found one. I will be, uh, I'm going to do it myself, actually. I'm going to be starting, uh, a YouTube channel. Ooh. My own YouTube channel. Yeah. You get to break it. Wow. Here. Yeah. Um, I've, I've got the ball rolling pretty far on it, actually. In fact, it actually exists now. Oh. But you can't, uh, there's no videos on it. So it doesn't really show up. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I won't say anything more about it yet because I'll, it'll still take me another, a little while before it's actually up. But I've got a video editor uh, lined up to help me and I've got a graphics and transitions and stuff person lined up to help me and some other helpers. So, I am think I'm going to do that. I think I'm going to try the YouTube thing. That's so, amazing. Yeah. Okay. Just so, for you, Sam. Oh my gosh. I'm so excited. Okay. Um, and so, do you think that's going to be out in maybe like three months or- I would say under three months, under but I would, I would say, you know, you know how the reality of these mm-hmm. things goes. Probably, yeah, two months, I would guess okay. from, from when we're recording is when I'm kind of thinking. The truth is I, I have the channel set up. I have everything lined up, but I kind of want to do it right, you know? And so, my goals for it are to- uh, I've got, like I said, I've got the people and we're working on the stuff. I just got the logo done. That's a big step. Um, I've got the concepts down for all the different types of videos. W- what I'm viewing it as is like, I've been looking at YouTube as a better outlet. I use uh, YouTube for LR, but most of the content I put up is just recordings of the show in audio forms because there's some people that can get to YouTube easier and it's just a kind of an exposure thing. Mm-hmm. But I'm not adding a ton of video content. I put the depth checks up there and I put the video set reviews up there and those get good views and they're fine. But you know, I'm just not putting up a ton of video content at the moment. Yeah. And the problem that I faced was what I was just telling you. I made some stuff that people seem to really like and that I liked making, but I can't justify spending 12 hours <laughs> on something like that and then just like sort of being like, here you go. Yeah. So, I need to put up, I don't need to get rich, right? That's not my goal. My, my goal though is, but I also can't just waste my time or throw away that huge chunks of time. So, I'm going to try to set up a Patreon at some point for the YouTube channel that I'm going so that once I hit just like a reasonable threshold for it, I'll feel great about spending my time doing those things. And hey, if it takes off, that's great. But if it just stays there, I'm fine with that. As long as I just get something back, um, you know, so that I don't feel like I'm just burning. It, it, again, it's like if it was an hour or two, no problem, but it's so much time for me to get these things up uh, that I had to do something uh, about it because I found myself in just a bad spot. I'm like, I want to make more content, but it's not, I can't really justify it. And so, the, the YouTube channel is, is my attempt to do that. Also, I just see a lot of people having good success on there and 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 kind of making a name for themselves. And some of them are some of them are kind of idiots. <laughs> I was just looking at like this person, really? Like I watched a few of these videos and I'm like, these aren't even good. Like I could do way better than that. And so, I figured it's time for me to uh, dip my toe in that pool and do what we were talking about where I kind of put it out and say, this is yeah. what I think a YouTube channel should look like for magic. 
And uh, I'm kind of excited to try it, although I'm really nervous because Mm -hmm. I'm just nervous about starting something new and getting in a little over my head. Mm -hmm. I don't want to burn myself out and I'm taking on a lot with this. So, it's like, I'm going to try to start out slow, you know, under promise, (laughs) under deliver, (laughs) that kind of thing. Marshall, you will never under deliver. I know you. You're always going to be putting the best thing you can out there. I know that. I I am going to try. But yeah, I'm really excited for that. And uh, that that, that is something uh, that that is not too... In fact, I've already got two videos worth of content for it lined up too. Sweet. Yeah. I'm excited for it. I love that. Oh my gosh. Well, I'm so excited. I love it. Start calling you Scoop. Scoop. Oh my gosh. (laughs) (laughs) I wish... Modern Masters 2017, which is Modern Masters number three, is right around the corner. Mm -hmm. And you are really the king of cracking packs. I am. So, I mean- I am. I started it. That's right. That's right. There's there's an afterlife of of cracked packs and you are like the one that's filled them all up. So, I actually have here some packs of Modern Masters too. Oh, do you? Okay. I do. Um, I've got three. I've got two with Karn on it and one with a Noble Hierarch. Which would you like to crack? Um, I'll take one of the Karns. Okay. So, you want to do like a, like a LR style crack a pack here? It's totally up to you. That's what I want to do. Okay. Do it right in the mic. All right. Just crack it right in the mic. Oh, oh. yeah. And you know, it's Modern Master, so it has a little pull tab on it. Mm-hmm. They still smell good. <laughs> the weird part is they don't smell as strong. Interesting. Yeah. Less chemicals being used. In or, the- or maybe the, the, uh, the packaging lets the air out. I don't know. Oh, yeah. That's probably. I love that smell. And I'll tell you one thing, Sam. This is just fair warning. If you ever get a really old pack, don't. Don't go for the whiff. It's terrible. It does not age well. It's like black mold. Yes. Okay. All right. So, let's get into this. I remember this set very well. Uh, Tribal Flames is our first card. Very nice. Yeah, that's a nice one though. I don't think we're going to be first picking it. Sunlance, no. Scion of the Wild. This is one that they rare shifted and uh, I don't want that one either. Grim Affliction, no. Telling Time, no. Sunspear Shikari, no. What's going on here? And still... Infection. That that one wasn't even that good in this set. Yoshino <laughs> Slaughtermaster. There was a double strike theme deck, mm-hmm. but I don't want that card either. Thrive, absolutely not. Sign in blood. All right, now we're getting to the business. We're Ooh. in the uncommons here. Reassembling skeleton. There were some cool combos with that. Celestial Purge. That's a reasonable removal spell. Oh, I like this one a lot. Spite Bellows. Ooh. You remember that? Five yes. and a red for a six one. When it leaves the battlefield, it does six damage to a creature. You can evoke it for one red red. That one's good. All right. What's our rare? Oh, we could go deep. Oh, wow. All Sun's Dawn. Wow. This is the four and a green sorcery for each color. Return up to one target card of that color from your graveyard to your hand. Exile on Sun's. I mean, this could be a draw five spells. Mm-hmm. So, this is my front runner right now because I like going five color. Mm-hmm. We got a foil here though. Ooh, Dread Drone. This one was really good too. Four and a black, four one, but it wasn't on the same level. Out of this pack, I would for sure take All Sense Dawn because mm-hmm. I like to go deep on these formats. Mm-hmm. Second place, I don't know. Maybe Scion of the Wild or the Tribal Flames or something. I think yeah. we can wheel the Tribal Flames out of this pack and just try to go five color though. Very that's, nice. That's what I would do. Do you want to open one more? <laughs> yeah, sure. Okay. Which one? Which uh, one we'll go same? for the Noble Hierarch. Thank you. All right. Let's see if we get something sweet. I cannot wait to draft Modern Masters 3, by the way. <laughs> I've been, I, I wrote a couple of articles for Wizards for it, and uh-huh. it is gorgeous. Ooh, wolf token. A wolf token. Yeah. All right. Here's a good start. Mana Leak. Ooh. I like that card. Glendhawk Idol. Court Homunculus. This card always looks terrible. It's white for a 1-1 one, one artifact creature homunculus, but if you control another artifact, it's a 2-2. Two, two. It gets plus one, plus one. Card actually performs, but Glendhawk Idol's better. Walking Nightmare. What is this one? A waking nightmare. That's why I didn't know what it did. This is a, uh, what's it called? Uh, Mind rot with arcane. 
Ferry Mechanist. That's business. That's our number one right now. Mm-hmm. The three and a blue flyer. It's an artifact creature. It's a two-two. And when it enters the battlefield, you can look at the top three, reveal an artifact. And if you do, you get it in your hand. In the decks that this goes in, it's basically just drawing you a card. Mm-hmm. Um, Apostle's Blessing. No. Simic Initiate. No. Goblin Fire Slinger. No. Gust Skimmer. Probably not. Sphere of the Suns makes mana um, in two ways, like it taps for mana. And then there's this artifact mm-hmm. sub thing. But still, I'm just on the Mechanist. Okay, now we're in the uncommons. Here's a good one. Eldrazi Temple. Mm-hmm. Lots of modern play there. Yeah. But we don't want it. <laughs> uh, Agony Warp. Huh. Blue, black for an instant. Target creature gets minus three, minus zero oh until end of turn. And another target, or, and it also just says target creature gets minus zero, oh, minus three until end of turn. You can do it to both if you want. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm going to put that in the maybe pile. I like yeah. Fairy Mechanist and Agony Warp. Ooh, Simic Growth Chamber. The blue-green bounce land. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's going in the maybe pile as well. Our rare is Necroskitter. One black black for a one four with wither. Whenever an opponent controls with a minus one minus one counter on it dies, you may return that card to the battlefield under your control. So it steals our guy. But I, I like the other cards better. What's our foil? Old Rusty. Rusted Relic. <laughs> old Rusty. Yeah, Old Rusty. Four mana for an artifact. But if you've got uh, Metalcraft, he becomes a five five. So I think what I would do is probably take the Fairy Mechanist here and then hope to get Rusted Relic back. You do want Rusted Relic in those artifact decks because it is just a 5-5 five, five for four in most scenarios. And Fairy Mechanist really is a good way to keep the card advantage and artifacts flowing. So, I think I would take Fairy Mechanist here. I like that artifact deck a lot too. Pretty sweet. Yeah, it was blue-white. Blue-white. Yeah. And this is the one with the Court Homunculus too, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah. We might be able to – or the Glenhawk Idol. Yeah. Like basically, I'm we're, we're sure to wheel something. Mm-hmm. Our worst case scenario is wheeling a Gust Skimmer, mm-hmm. which is pretty bad. But, you know, our best case scenario is wheeling one of those uh, like a Rusted Relic. Uh-huh. So. Yeah, that's what I take. I like these sets a lot because uh, when you're playing all these other sets and you see these cards being reprinted again, you're like, mm-hmm. oh, I, rem- I remember that totally. one. Totally. And this next one, Modern Masters 3, it focuses a lot on sets that uh, I played when I first came back, Shards mm-hmm. of Alara. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, you know, they put all those uh, uncommons in like Woolly yep. Thoktar and mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. And I was like, yep. oh, I remember th- I played with those in Standard. Right. I played with them in Limited. Mm-hmm. You know, the first pre-release I ever went to was Shards of Alara. So, this is going to be big time nostalgia for me too. Yeah. yeah. They also put a lot of those Shard lands in there too. Yeah, oh, all of them. Yeah, all yeah, of them. Yeah, the yep. full five of the Tri-Lands are in there and then they've got all 10 Guild Gates, the mm-hmm. the dual lands that enter battlefield tapped and uh and they've got all this the signets yes but they're at uncommon this time mm-hmm. instead of common like normal so you're gonna have to fight for them a little bit mm-hmm. yeah and then the fetches too so do you feel like the archetypes in modern master one two and three draft are, are they going to carry over they're going to be different draft archetypes they're for- going to be different mm-hmm. yeah they're actually going to be a lot different like for example the deck that you and I, Sam, are drafting here a uh, fairy mechanist into one of these artifacts was the blue-white deck. And the blue-white deck in Modern Masters 3 is a blink value deck. It's mm-hmm. returning things. It, it's it's Flicker Wisp and Ghostly Flicker and uh, uh, Momentary Blink. It's it's completely different. So, yeah, they, I'm sure there'll be some carryover just randomly, but like they're not – it is not the same. Like you, yeah. you have to relearn all this stuff now. Yeah. yeah which is good. Do we hope to see another foil Tarmogoyf being contemplated in the top eight? <sighs> Good question. I don't know. Uh, Look, that got kind of (laughs) ugly. You know, social media has its way. And, uh, and, you know, poor Pascal took a lot of grief for that. But I have a weird view on these things. I think it's a good thing. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily for him, though he turned it into a good thing by auctioning it off for charity. But anytime to me, people are talking that much about this type of stuff and creating stories and lore about our game and about the experiences people have had and Goyfgate, as it is now called, I think it's a good thing. 
Mm-hmm. I do. You know, another one that happened was when Jace the Mind Sculptor got banned. Mm-hmm. To me, that completed a story arc of awesomeness. Mm-hmm. Nobody knew that Jace was going to be that great. And then he ended up being completely absurd. Uh, he ended up being too good. And then he ended up getting banned. And that's a bad thing. Wizards doesn't want to ban cards. It makes, you know, it makes them look bad. It's, it's bad for consumer confidence. It's just bad, 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 bad. But I think it's the best. Like, and the same thing with Goifgate. It was not a good thing that happened, right? Like something interesting happened, but then there was a lot of just arguments and name calling and kind of some ugliness that fall. And, and that, that part wasn't very good. But man, I got to say, like, let's say, Sam, you meet a, a, a new friend, somebody at the local store, and they're like, well, I've been playing Magic for about a year. You know, and at some point you go, blah, 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 Jason Mindskull. They're like, yeah, what is that? I've seen that card, but what's the deal? And you're like, dude, (laughs) check this out. Like it got banned in standard. It was so good, right? Or let's say you make a joke like you made to me about a foil Tarmogoyf, you know, Mm -hmm. like, well, would you take it? You know, like to somebody Mm -hmm. and they just go, what do you mean? Of course I would. It's worth $400. Of course I'd take it. And you're like, no, no, because of the Goyfgate thing. What are you talking about? Yeah. The chance to tell them that story, it's fascinating. It's fat, you know, what would you do? And, mm-hmm. you know, uh, do you take the money or the the equity or, you know, and it's just super like if Pascal doesn't, then that story doesn't happen in the same way. And then you don't get to tell a story to this player. And, you know, the card game is fascinating, but everything around it is what makes it, you know, like a culture. Yeah. But I think lore things like that outside of the game and talking about, I mean, like Crackgate and mm-hmm. Goifgate, mm-hmm. you know, and like people getting upset about Emrakul getting banned yeah. recently. And yeah. then people getting upset that cats weren't banned recently. Like yep. stuff like that is all very funny to me. Yeah. And it's important. Yeah. Because, you know, what I think about for magic is that like you consider yourself a magic player. I'm a magic player. But how, how much time do we spend actually playing? Well, I draft almost every day. I play way more than the average magic player. Way, way more. And even then, I'm only, you know, of my total magic time, meaning playing, thinking about making content for, it's still only 10% or something of the time that I'm doing magic stuff. And the rest is this, talking to people about magic and thinking about it and reading forum posts and going on Twitter. And, you know, it's a culture that builds around it. And if you took all that stuff away, I mean, the game's still great, but you have... Monopoly. Nobody talks about what's going on with Monopoly, right? Nobody's like, hey, yeah, there's a new top hat coming out. Nobody cares. Nobody knows. But when you play it, you're like, okay, I'm rolling dice. I'm doing the Monopoly thing. And then it goes in the closet and you don't think about it until you play it again. The difference is, is that with magic, we're always talking about something. There's always some drama, some controversy, some discussion point, some interesting thing coming up. And uh, I mean, I think if that goes, magic goes like Mm. to me, like I mean, the game's still great, but like it ends up being something that collects dust in the, in the, in the closet until you want to play. And then, so that's why I'm kind of grateful for even things that seem bad on the surface, like Goifgate and that kind of stuff is that it, it gives us something to talk about. That's so fascinating. Marshall, what's coming up next for you? My next big thing on the horizon is, is starting a, a YouTube channel and uh, it's not going to be limited stuff. I, I, I really want to, cause you know, one thing that I've always felt for, for LR is that we don't talk about non-LR, non-limited stuff because we know why you come there. You want to get better. You're here to, to, get something. And we want to give that to you. And so, that means that, you know, yeah, sometimes we'll do a little sign off and have some fun or talk about other stuff. That's fine. But the show's over at that point. You can just turn that off if you don't want and you're not going to miss any any actual stuff. But we don't talk about current events. We don't talk about controversies. We don't talk about any of that stuff because it's not the place for it. But I have opinions. I do. I, I'm in this community. I, I have an opinion on Goifgate and on Crackgate and on, uh, you know, bannings and all that stuff. 
And uh, I hope that this gives me an outlet to be able to facilitate some discussion and to give my opinion on it, uh, on some of that stuff too. So that's another another one of the things that it's just like, it gives me a home for the stuff that I want to make that can't really go on LR and the LR YouTube channel. So it's still me. So I'm still going to have that twist of trying to get to the bottom of stuff kind of mentality and breaking things down, uh, you know, but that's what I'm hoping it's going to be when it comes out. We'll see how it goes though. Marshall, I have some rapid fire questions for you. Okay. Let's do it. Rapid fire question number one. Of the five colors of magic, white, blue, black, red, and green, what is your favorite color and why? Blue. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Not remotely close. Most of my favorite cards are blue. My absolute favorite card is blue. Like many spikes, I I gravitated towards it quickly. Uh, At first, I think it was for the wrong reasons. I thought that it was like the clever player's, you know, color. And I thought, well, I want to be like that. Um, But I realized later that it actually just contains some of the things that I really love about magic, which are uh, tempo. I love getting tempo on people and drawing cards. Those are the things that I love to do in magic. and, And blue encapsulates both of those. Is there a color pair that you would put with blue? Green. Yeah. Blue green's my favorite color pair. Yeah. Easily. Simic for life. Wow. I love those enemy pairs. The enemy pairs are better in my mind because they complement each other. You know, they fill out the things that the others doesn't do. And in cube, I always try to draft blue green somehow in, you know, um, I like black as well. Uh, So blue, black or blue green. And and I would say that if I had to pick one of the three color groupings, it would be Sultai. That's my Mm -hmm. favorite one. And my Canadian Highlander deck is Sultai, uh, you know, value town or whatever. So yeah, uh, but but green is definitely my second. Oh, I love that. I'm right there with you on all of your answers. I think um, Simic even really speaks very much ab- about kind of like who you are as a person, like your personality. Like, you know, it, it's like this creative genius, right? Like creating mutants or spawning things, like making Creating things. things. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I like that. I never yeah. thought of it like that. I thought you were going to say I'm incredibly good looking and also very large. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> You're just a terrible snaggletoothed ooze. Yeah. yeah. No, no, no. <laughs> we were going a different direction, Sam. Not snaggletoothed ooze. We were going for very intelligent and muscly, you know, that's... <laughs> <laughs> and you can teleport because you're blue, uh, you have to I'll, teleport. I'll take that too, okay. yeah. or, or I look like a jellyfish. It's <laughs> <part of that. laughs> you look like a jellyfish. <laughs> okay, well, Marshall the Mimeoplasm. Okay. okay. <laughs> Marshall, rapid fire question number two. If you could change something about Magic the Gathering, what would it be? Um, I would have mixed format Grand Prix. Mm. I would, uh, I, I, know, I know this is a little narrow, uh, uh, but you know, in my world, I'm out at tournaments all the time. And one of my favorite things about the Pro Tour is that it challenges you as a player to be good at both limited and constructed. And I think that that's something that the masses are ready for. I think that, you know, the fact that they have to make a constructed deck, they're going to have to do that anyway if it's a constructed GP. But if they have to draft, they don't have to bring anything else. They can just show up. Now, I realize that the barrier to entry is higher. Uh, it makes it a little more intimidating for a player who maybe hasn't gone to a GP before, which I don't like that aspect of it. So, I think they should do it sparingly. But I do think that they're ready. I do. I think that the the masses are ready to show up and do some booster draft and then and then play some constructed and then do it again the next day. And uh, that's something that I, I don't know that Wizards is looking at, but I hope they are. And I've certainly suggested it. Wow. I love that. You know, I never really thought about that, Marshall, because whenever I go to a GP, I'm just like default to, oh, it's constructed. But I've gone to a couple that are sealed and I had a phenomenal time. Oh, yeah. They're the best. And imagine if you could do both in one. I just think that's such a cool opportunity. And and again, I, I think that our player base has come along and I, I think they're ready for it. I love that answer. Marshall, number three, if you could give something to every Magic player, what would it be? Do you mean physical? 
anything you want. I'd, I think I'd give them two things. Um, I'd give them a hug. Okay. Magic tends to be a place that uh, people come to who maybe didn't fit in in some other areas. And I, I was like that, you know, people that were the nerds in school or picked on or whatever. I really like the aspect that we have of a community where you can come here no matter who you are, what you look like or anything. And so, I think a hug would be an appropriate, you know, uh, transaction there. I would also give everybody the ability, <laughs> this is a little more selfish, <laughs> to rip up their ornithopters. Ooh. So, you know, this is a symbolic thing, but, you know, we talk about opportunity costs on the podcast a lot. And I've had a lot of players tell me, well, but ornithopter's free. So I always put it in my limited deck or in my deck. And of course, that's not how it works. And I would love it if I could get the magic community over that hump. And so, symbolically, I'd want them to to tear their, their ornithopters in half. <laughs> That's what I want. <laughs> okay. All right. And I like ornithopter. Nothing against you, little buddy, but uh, you got to go. <laughs> well, isn't ornithopter now a masterpiece? Uh, it is. I want those ones torn up too. <laughs> did they do that to troll you on purpose? I think they just did it because it's like a staple in uh, affinity. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, that's too funny. I would use the Antiquities one over the uh, Masterpiece one anyway. Uh -huh. the, the Antiquities one's just too cool. You know what's funny about Ornithopter? There was a flavor text. I can't remember which uh, or, or what the exact flavor text or what set it was from, but it was said something along the lines of, on almost every plane, artificers have somehow come up with the Ornithopter. Yes, I remember that. And uh, I, I think, think that was like the original flavor text, Was that really the original yeah, one? Yeah, it could be, yeah. But it's very funny because you're like, somehow these limited players find an opportunity to put it in their deck. It's totally true. It is. It's the same thing. I see it repeat ever since we've done the show. I've had people come up and tell me that. And uh, yeah, it is funny. It, 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 the ornithopter will never go away. That's good design. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. <laughs> Pat yourself on the back, Mark. That's good design. <laughs> Marshall, question number four. What do you see in the future of Magic the Gathering? You know, I have a, maybe it's a controversial take. So, I, it's my opinion that we've been in a boom. Uh, we've been in a boom state for about seven or eight years now. I agree. Yeah. Uh, starting around Zendikar. Yes. Which is when I came in, things started to get crazy. And they have not slowed down, but I think they will. I went through a similar boom in poker. Uh, you know, in the early to mid 2000s, poker exploded. It went from being kind of this thing that was in the shadows and nobody really knew about, but a combination of factors, including what we talked about earlier with televised poker becoming viable, um, with a relative unknown amateur winning the biggest poker tournament. Chris Moneymaker. That's right. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and a few other factors sort of coincided to make poker an absolute huge entity that stopped. Uh, they had a, a major falling out. Online poker did with the U.S. government, which mm -hmm. shut down the websites, which then shut off the funding for the TV shows because the websites were the ones who were funding it. They also shut down uh, a lot of the sponsorships for the players, and things have since normalized down a lot. Not to what it was. It's still big. It's still quite big. But uh, they're nowhere near there. In the heyday, there was money flying everywhere, and people didn't think it would end. Magic's boom has been more gradual. It started to ramp up with Zendikar and then just started growing and growing and growing. And I know why. It's because it's the best game ever printed, ever made. It's just the best. The product is great. It is a fantastic, fascinating game that is multifaceted enough to accommodate a wide range of players from a how you play, what you play, and how often you play perspective. So that was them, in my mind, getting an overdue boost. But that kind of growth can't last forever. 
And I think that at some point it will level out. I don't know when, I don't know what would cause that, but I just think that like they're going through a normal growth spurt that will then level out. And what I'm curious to see is what happens then, because now we're kind of in the thick of a boom. I mean, you know, there's people making podcasts and content and they're making it into their career and they're doing YouTube channels and they're getting supported by the community and all this stuff. There's kind of that money flying everywhere, or, you know, uh, jobs, you know, if, if you want to write magic articles, you can find a site that will take you. Now, it might not be the big site that you want to work for right away, but you'll find somebody, you know, that'll say, look, if you're good at it, you know, this is good stuff. We'll put this up. We'll give you a little bit for it. When the belt starts to tighten on the other end of that, I'm curious to see how things go. You know, uh, there's a lot of different factors with the magic economy from the content stuff, but also just the cards themselves and collections and all that kind of stuff too. So I don't know where it goes from here, but I expect it to plateau, at least on some level, and then adjust from there. And there's a lot of, you know, very reasonable adjustments that can be made as long as people, you know, kind of keep their head about them. And then what I actually envision is a period of time where that's sort of the norm again. And then I think that we we will see another boom in our lifetimes. Uh, I think the game is so good that as gaming and geeky stuff becomes more and more mainstream, which it's become much, much more mainstream, right. but I think it still has a ways to go. I think we will see magic emerge as the default real life game. Video games have their own thing going that, that they're going to continue on whatever trajectory they're on. But I think that magic will be the game for people who like to get together and play games and handle cards and do that, you know, non-online stuff. And I think that that's when magic will reach its real potential. I think this was like a, this was a reaction to uh, our society being more accepting of things like this. But when we get to the point where video games are at now, where it's just everybody plays them and there's just no stigma attached to it anymore, right. I think that magic is going to see another big increase. And I think that at that point, it'll get to where it's going. Like, I think that it'll hit saturation for the people, you know, roughly for the people that want to play it, similar to how video games are now. It's not a growth market, right? Magic is a growth market. And I think it will be again. It could be the movie. You know, there's supposed to be a movie at some point. It could be something like what happened in poker where a few things happen at once. Uh, a movie comes out. Another thing happens. A famous person says something. You know, it, it, it's just these random things. And then it sparks another another boom. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that the first boom that we had this time was caused you know, in many ways by the digital stuff, by uh, duels at the Planeswalkers was a major factor. Uh, a couple of reason, kind of weird promotions plus a great couple of sets in a row um, sparked it. And also, I think that it's cyclical in the sense that like a lot of people like me came back and had some nostalgia for this stuff, but realized that now I had a good job. I was more secure. I could actually afford to play. Um, and, and if I wanted to make it a hobby, I could. And then I did, you know, because I kind of was you know how it is. You're going to school. You're trying to get your life in order. It can be hard to prioritize a card game. But when you kind of get settled in, you're like, all right, well, now what do I want to do with myself? And this is a, you know, one of those options. And I think we'll see that start to happen again. But I think that the second time it comes around, it's actually going to be the children of the people that came back who kind of keep their parents into it and then eventually become the stewards of the game going forward. That That's down the line a ways, but that's where I see things going. Yeah, I love that. And earlier, Marshall, you were saying about how, you know, there is still that dream, I think, for every Magic player to get to the Pro Tour. Yeah. I want to be that old man, Sam, with the cane. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That'd be sweet. Yeah, right? I like that. Yeah. The geriatric league. Oh, I'm in. Okay. <laughs> Let's do Sign it. Sign me up. <laughs> <laughs> and last, Marshall, do you have any asks or requests of the listening audience? Um, I have a couple. 
Uh, one of them has to do with what I mentioned before, which is uh, it has to do with being considerate. I'm not breaking ground here uh, by saying that I think that people should be considerate. But what I mean by that isn't just being polite. I mean, it's genuinely considering the uh, the whole and not taking the whole for granted. And, and what I mean by that is it's, it's within our community, we should strive to have anybody come in that wants, but also we should not take for granted that we have this. Uh, if you've ever been to like a smaller local game store and the numbers have dwindled and you've gone below critical mass to do a tournament every week, that game store ends up closing down or there's no tournament to be had and you lose a community. And right now we're in a position where there's so many people playing magic that nobody can imagine that happening because it's just all going so well. Uh, like I mentioned with the poker boom thing. I mean, you know, I've always kind of found this idea of being like a magic finance person funny because for the past six years, all you had to do is say, buy every magic card you see. If you would have done that, you would have made money across the board. If I just would have bought five boxes of every set or one case of every set that I've ever played and just shoved it in a closet, I would have just made a ton of money. I, you don't <laughs> have to do anything, right? Because when things are booming, it's easy. It's the, the hard time is when things go up and down that you have to really be able to navigate prices and make things work like that, right? So these things are all symptoms of us being in a boom stage. Same thing with the community being healthy right now. What I don't like is if people take for granted if that's the case. And so, when I say be considerate, I mean, remember that this is not a given, that you don't just get to have a great game store with a lot of players to play in. You have to facilitate that. And that means thinking about the other people that are there. What are their needs? What are their wants? What can you do to help them be comfortable? Um, what can you do to help them grow within the game rather than shun them or push them away in some way? So, that's one thing. And then the other thing that I had asked is just that like when we put out the podcast, we try to give the best advice that we can. And there's a lot of people, I think, giving out really good advice and really good thoughts. And uh, I would urge you to listen. Our advice on limited resources is always take what we say and incorporate it into your worldview, incorporate it into your limited rating. If you're just taking it from us, then you're not really doing yourself any favor about getting better. And I think that also translates over to uh, everything with magic from the community stuff that I mentioned to just getting better. I think that there's a, so much great information out there right now that if you're willing to listen, you can get yourself to anywhere you want to get, whether it's play skill content, like what we do, um, growing a community, being a judge, any of that stuff, it's all out there. You just have to be willing to go find it and listen to it. And so I, I would encourage people to do that. Great. And of course, they can find your show, lrcast.com yep. and <laughs> limited resources, constructed resources. They can find you broadcasting on GPs and premier level events like Pro Tours, anywhere so they can find you. Yeah, I'm on Twitter, Marshall underscore LR. Um, basically, everything for the podcast is um, is linked on LRcast's uh, front page. So, if, if you want to find the stream or Luis's stuff or any of that, it's all just right on the front page. That's great. And as Marshall shared earlier... There is going to be a brand new video style YouTube content. So, yep. we're excited for it and we'll be looking out for that. Yeah, I'm excited too. Look for it. Well, Marshall, I just wanted to thank you and also take a moment to really acknowledge you and also thank you again because I've learned so much from you and LR and also from behalf of the community because, you know, you came out of nowhere, you took this love for this game and then you just turned it into something that I think has really benefited players. I remember vividly sitting uh, at Mox Boarding House one day and mm -hmm. I was like, 
what can I do to get better? And I just started asking the people next to me. Mm-hmm. And they just looked at me square in the eye and they're like, listen to limited resources. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. <laughs> like, and, and I've asked this across the board many times in many different places. And people look me square in the eye and they go, listen to limited resources. And, you know, there's a lot of content out there. But, and, and it's the one that I think that has consistently showed up for hundreds of episodes that have just been like, get better. This is how you get better. And this is just raw, unfiltered knowledge. Yeah. So yeah, that's the goal for sure. Yeah. And and it hasn't it has never diluted. It has never veered off path. It's never decided to take a day off. And I just wanted to thank you, Marshall. You're welcome. Thanks for saying so, Sam. I appreciate it. You've made a significant contribution to our community. Thank you. Is there something that you want to take us out on? I think that uh we get asked, I'm sure you do too, a lot about doing what we do, making stuff mm-hmm. in magic. And uh I mentioned it a couple of times, but you can do it. You can totally do it. You don't need that much computer stuff. You don't need to be that smart with computer stuff. Uh, You just need a good idea. You need to execute on it. You need to practice at it and you need to be consistent. And if you do that, you can totally do these things. So uh, I think that like a lot of people don't want to, no problem. But for the ones that do, uh, you can, you should. Okay, everyone, I hope you enjoyed sitting down with me and Marshall. To all the content creators out there, remember what Marshall said. If you have an idea and you want to make something for the community, now is the best time, especially with the boom that's happening in Magic the Gathering. You'll find limited resources online at lrcast.com. You'll find Marshall on Twitter at Marshall underscore LR. Limited Resources is also on YouTube, and be on the lookout for Marshall's new video content that he's working on. I'm excited for it to be released in the near future. And thanks, Marshall, for the scoop. Okay, listeners, stick around. There's a special interview coming up next, but first, a few announcements. This episode of Kitchen Table Magic is brought to you by Paragon City Games, and courtesy of Paragon City Games, we're doing another giveaway. And this time, it's a big one. We're giving away an entire box of Modern Masters 2017. Entering is simple. Head on over to facebook.com slash kitchen table magic podcast for the giveaway post by Raffle Copter. Follow Paragon City Games on Twitter and Facebook to enter. It's that simple. Extra entry points are awarded if you also follow Kitchen Table Magic on Twitter and Facebook. One lucky winner will receive a box of Modern Masters 2017. Marshall talked about the importance of being compassionate to each other in the community so that people will feel included and come out and play Magic. Paragon City Games works really hard to create that kind of environment in their store. That's why they have stellar online reviews and a rapidly growing fan base. I'm grateful that Paragon City Games has decided to stand tall as a leader in their community. If you're ever in Draper, Utah, check them out. They have a beautiful retail space, an amazing wooden deck boxes, and die-hard metal dice on sale. And speaking of those wooden deck boxes, I'm going to show them to you one day in a video soon. I saw one recently and I was blown away. Many thanks to Paragon City Games for giving me the opportunity to do a giveaway for you, the listeners. Remember to spread the love with a like on Facebook and a follow on Twitter. And be sure to check out their weekly stream at twitch.tv slash Paragon City Games. They're working hard to bring you legacy and modern action every week. Okay, is everyone enjoying Season 2 so far? I'm really excited for all the amazingness that's to come. 
please support Kitchen Table Magic on Patreon. Each episode, I bring you mythic rare interviews with your favorite people in the magic community. I make high quality shows, and if you appreciate quality, support Kitchen Table Magic with $1, $3, or $6 a month on Patreon. Supporters at the $6 level get special gifts from my interviews. I have in front of me eight signed cards by Marshall from our Crack-A-Pack that Marshall would have drafted. All Suns Dawn, Fairy Mechanist, a foil rusted relic, reassembling skeleton, sign and blood, celestial purge, monoleak, and a foil dread drone. Three of them are going to my Patreon supporters, Brian, James, and Alexander. There are five more up for grabs, all for new Patreon supporters at the $6 level. Head on over to patreon.com slash kitchen table magic. I've spruced up the page with new graphics, and trust me, you'll want to read the funny things I wrote there. All Patreon insiders get access to behind-the-scenes show notes for each interview I've done. I also make myself available to supporters where you'll be able to ask me questions and connect with me directly about the show. And if you're considering supporting the show at the $1 or $3 level, Marshall Sutcliffe answered a sound check question about a super secret marinara sauce recipe directly from the legendary Brian David Marshall himself. I did not include it in the interview, and it's exclusively for Patreon supporters. Big thanks again to all of my current supporters, Ryan, Marcus, James, and Alexander. Okay, everyone, stick around. Part two is starting with a very special second interview with Vorthos Mike. Hey, everyone, Sam here with Kitchen Table Magic, but I have a very special guest today, Vorthos Mike. Mike, how are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me today. And you are a special guest, and you're here to talk to us about something very special. Could you tell us what it is? Sure. Uh, obviously, uh, the main thing in my life is art, obviously. And I have a large art thing coming up, uh, the Magic Art Show, which we are currently crowdfunding for uh, to have a large art show at Grand Prix Las Vegas as the first stop in a potential tour and a potential new normal of this becoming a more regular thing. Okay, and let's hear a quick clip from your Kickstarter video. Hello, I'm Mike Lineman, Vorthos Mike to some art columnist at GatheringMagic.com, and I'm here hanging out at Lodestone Games in wonderful Minneapolis, Minnesota, to tell you about the Kickstarter I'm working with, The Magic Art Show, and we need your help. This show is going to be the first exhibition of its kind to bring over 100 paintings and sketches and concept artworks to Las Vegas this June this year. At the show, we're going to have paintings, sketches, concept work, even maquette sculptures in one place together. We'll have over a hundred of these, including Ravnica, Amonkhet, Mirrodin, and a variety of other artworks that you get to see up close and personal, and we need your help to get there. The funds we hope to Mike, this is fantastic. How did you get the idea for this? The idea is not new. Um, I've been writing for uh, almost over half a decade now, and the idea of an art show came Basically, when I started, I have, an, I have a background in museum work. <laughs> Prior to that, I studied art history. I worked as an art director at a gaming company. So this is not a new thing. It's more of it finally got off the ground. And it really took this long for not only for me to realize that I'm in a unique spot and it's not like someone's going to steal the idea because ideas are free. Anybody can do that. But building the notoriety and um, having the clout enough that a collector or an artist will loan an object to a first-time show where people aren't normally used to seeing art there. You know, the, the guards aren't normal. We don't have all the things nailed down. But by simply the people knowing that Orthos Mike deals with art, that's enough. And that is what took six years to do. 
That is incredible. So tell us more about the show. You're going to have over 100 original arts. You're also going to have sculptures and things. Sure, sure. So uh, when people hear that, they're like, well, what is, why do you have sculptures? Magic doesn't have sculptures. That doesn't make sense. Um, and, and the idea is obviously we're going to have paintings. You know, you get to see brush strokes and neat stuff, canvas on oil board, neat. Um, you'll see some sketches where you get to see some of like where it came from, from you know, sketch to final. Um, then we have some concept art. And that is some of the not only color, but black and white pieces that during the concept push, they, Wizards brings in, you know, four artists. They flesh out the whole idea of a set. And from that, they build a style guide. The style guide they send to the artists, and that's how the art gets made. Um, so you will be able to see, like, Wayne Reynolds, who made Rakdos for Return to Ravnica. And you can see him make the initial idea for Rakdos Shred Freak. And then you're going to see the final for Rakdos Shred Freak. And you get to see this continuity between the two where you're like... Oh, I see that connection. Or they changed this, but they kept this. And that sort of background and in, in concepting, we really, really want to show. Um, and the final thing, sculptures, um, uh, we're going to have maquettes. In order to study light on a painting, um, obviously you can't find a dragon and paint it outside. That doesn't make sense. Um, so what you do is you make it in clay and you shine light on it wherever your light source is. And then you get to see the shadows and you're like, okay, this is falling this way and this way. And then that informs your color rough where you show the darkest darks and the lightest lights. And that thing, we're going to have Atraxa from Victor Adame Minguez to show there. And it's, you know, it's pretty big and it's going to be pretty neat. That is so amazing. I was watching some of the uh, renderings of the gallery. You're literally going to put up walls. I mean, we're talking about a real art exhibit here. Walls, originals, people are going to go through this little maze, maybe some red wine in their hands, maybe not. I mean, we're working on that sort of thing. Like, what makes a wall is the next question we ask. Like, okay, do we need to put stuff on the ground? Does it need to be a white wall? You know, do we need to change the lighting up top to make it dark or something? But I don't want to oversell it because, I mean, it really is, you know, grid walls. It's going to have encapsulations over the top of it with labels on it with informative information. But, you know, it's not going to be like, I'm in a museum and I got lost in here. No, you're going to still know you're in a convention center. But we need it to be not just like a flea market where there's art on tables. It needs to be on a wall so you can experience it in tandem to other pieces. The distance between them matters. When a sketch goes above or below a painting, that matters. So if thematically, it's going to be something more uh, into a pop-up show or a pop-up gallery. If there's any uh, hipsters out of Brooklyn here, it's more similar to that in feeling, uh, except you're in a convention center, not in some random warehouse uh, near the edge of the city. I love that. Okay. And there's also going to be some Kickstarter rewards. Could you tell us a little bit about that, Mike? Sure. Uh, in In talking about that to say, well, why don't why are we doing the Kickstarter in the first place? Like, why aren't you just renting walls, rent art, bingo, bango? Well, that's the problem is that when it's Vegas, everything's really expensive. Um, so we're like, well, why don't we buy walls? We'll bring them. And then the next show, it's not going to be so expensive at all. We just got to pay to ship the things there and we're done. And art, we can get there cheaply. Um, so we have a few rewards. We're like, okay, how can we get some value in there that people would be okay to pitch in a couple bucks to help out to say, yeah, I'd love to help an art show become a thing now at Vegas and going forward. So, you know, we have um, some tokens, wonderful people over at uh, Cardamajigs, um, Rico is just so stellar at really knowing the newest new. He's got like a metal enamel token, which is like this heavy piece of like gold and it's like an old timey like Burger King like thing with the Pokemon except it's a token they're just they're super cool we have a print and playmat from Zach Stella who does work traditionally which people didn't know um, beautiful piece he made this painting sold in like a day which we were surprised we're like whoa okay 
And then, of course, we have some uh, uh, other add-on things that will be coming soon. Uh, obviously, we just revealed that we're going to have a print available of the piece. Um, Playmats are going to be neat, but we're working on a couple added extra things on the end. Um, but we really wanted to hedge our bets. We were really nervous that this was not going to be something that enough people are willing to pitch in about to say, you know, I'll put in five, ten bucks. So we had to slowly unveil it, which you'll see soon. Mike, that is fantastic. I've been checking out the reward levels. And you're right, Rico makes some really amazing tokens from Cardamajigs. And then also there's going to be a dinner as well and also an early walkthrough. So, okay, so this, this dinner idea, this is the thing we've gotten the most questions about. So originally, we were going to just have a simple dinner. It was going to be really cheap. It was basically going to be like uh, pitching $20 and an organized dinner. You pay for your own food. And then we're like, wait a minute. What if we do it as a higher level tier and it's a really nice dinner? So that the people that actually understand that if I throw down, you know, it's not cheap. Um, I'm going to have an amazing dinner and this is going to be the highlight of my entire week. Like that idea of I get to hang out with artists and we just have one or two more that are yet to announce, which you'll actually you'll hear it by the time we get this. Um, we're having Jason Engel come and then we have one, maybe a couple more, too. So you're going to be in this intimate setting talking with artists, getting to ask really interesting things with other passionate art people. So you get to talk at a very high level, have some amazing food. We're going to, uh, we're working on the, the deal of the meal yet, which yet to announce, but it's going to sell out right away. And it's the one thing that we can offer that is so unique from a GP. You can't do this at an SCG open. You can't do this at a normal GP in Nebraska to say, I want to have dinner, amazing dinner with artists to talk art. Like you just can't do that. And the pre-show, originally, we were going to have sales in the show. Originally, in that pre-show, the, the, the sales was the part. We could have a gallery instead of an exhibition. So you can have an art show, which means anything. Exhibition means no sales. Gallery means sales. So the early access was going to be people could buy art early. But since I talked to a bunch of artists, being the community man I am, and said, you know, is that going to be okay? And they said, well... If people go to the early show and buy all this concept art or buy all this art from you, they may not buy my art at my booth at GP Vegas. And I'm like, ah, that's clever. Good point. I don't need to sell it here. That's not something I need. But they do. So that's kind of something that's, you know, this remnant of our earlier works. We're still going to have an opening get-together party, cheese. There may be wine. We'll see. Um, but it's not going to be the, the the mad dash as it originally was, simply because we're, we're, we're iterating. We're mindful of what the artists want and what the community needs from this. And we're willing to react to it in a moment's notice. And I think that's okay. Mike, I think visitors are really going to look forward to all the different reward levels that you have. But also, could you share with us about why you've chosen the planes that you have chosen? Okay, so for, for people that are brand new to this, that are just like, I love kitchen table, and they haven't even clicked on the link yet so that you haven't looked at it. Um, we're choosing four planes, um, and the four planes are Mur Mirrodin, which is also new Phyrexia, um, Ravnica, which includes Return to Ravnica. Um, we're having Amonkhet, which is literally being released right now, and we're going to have Innistrad, both old and new. And the reason why we chose those four is, one, there's more art. Anytime you have a Return to set, you have double the amount of art, obviously. So people would ask, why don't you just do Dominaria? There's like 10, 15 years. Just do that. It's the easy choice. The problem with that is it doesn't fit the narrative of the experience. So by having different rooms, we will have an introduction to each room, be a planeswalker from the plane. So for example, um, Karn will introduce Mirrodin and we will have Carrie Thomas Barkhead and Aunt Tessador help us with writing the story to say, I am Karn. This is my plane. And this is why it's my plane. I created it. Here's the storyline significance. Here is what happened. Here is what is happening. Here is what could happen. And here's my role where I am now. 
So you get to planeswalk to the different planes, just like you do in the game. So by having a mix mash of art to say, we're going to have all blue creatures, that doesn't mean anything. It's neat, but it doesn't do anything. So by the first show, we're like, okay, most amount of art, thematic makes sense. Um, we can find meaning in them, and we will have um, groundswell of numbers. We looked into Alara. We couldn't get enough art for it, unfortunately. Dominaria, we got plenty of art, but nothing cohesive yet. And also, as a preview for some of your listeners, um, this is a concept, this idea. Um, this is the first show, and it sets up next year, which is the 25th anniversary. Uh, why does that matter? Because people are <laughs> theorizing that Dominaria is coming. Dominaria is coming back in the 25th anniversary. So thus, the art show has to be Dominaria, which is neat. You know, you could see Time Spiral and whatever. Fine. We want to bring Alphas next year. I started the Alpha Art Project back in 2011. I'm pretty far along in identifying where all the original art Alpha paintings are located, who the people are, want to bring them back to one show, bring all the boom booms back, the massive, significant, expensive pieces of what we want. But in order for us to do that, we need the community to say, yeah, this is totally a good idea. We want this. Do it right. Knowing that boom booms are coming. They're right out of hand. We we have them available. We have dozens of alphas. It's just you can't start with that. You have to start smaller and, and, and make sense. And this is exactly that. And people need to know that. Why this is so expensive to do is that we are buying walls for that. And then things going forward after that. I love it, Mike. Okay, listeners. So you heard it from Mike firsthand. There's a specific reason as to why we're buying walls is because this is going to be a fixture of the magic community, hopefully moving forward. And I love what you said, Mike, about crafting a story that is relevant to us in the community right now with the current sets. We just had Innistrad and now we're going into Amonkhet. Like these are relevant places for us to go. I also really appreciate the little spoiler you gave us about what is to come in Magic 25-year anniversary. Are we going back to Dominaria? I hope uh, Mark Rosewater does us a solid favor and does bring us back there. If we do, then we're going to be able to also have all the art to go along with it. I think it's an incredibly noble cause. I think it's very, very worth it. And uh, I'm very excited, Mike, for this show. Are you looking for anything yourself? Are you looking for a pet card, a deck, uh, something in your commander deck that you really enjoy out of these four planes? Oh, gosh. In terms of uh, Innistrad, I'm always looking for good angels. <laughs> in terms of Amonkhet, I'm always looking for indestructible godlike creatures. So uh, maybe mythical okay. weapons, who knows? I mean, they could all be in there. Okay, we, we, we have some of those things already. Um, you will see more. Um, we have already announced, we already have a planeswalker. Uh, Nissa's uh, painting from Howard Lyon will be in the show. And frankly, maybe one of the only times people get to see it up close. And we, we know that. Paintings go missing. They stay up someone's house and they never leave. And there's power in that. That There's reason why you, you visit the Mona Lisa, even though everybody knows what it looks like. It's this big. It's like a foot by 18 inches. It's tiny. But seeing it up close matters. You become in the moment and it becomes this fixed memory of where you were at the time in your life. And people don't even know they want this. They, they assume from a GP survey, make it cheaper, make it more stuff. It's like, yes, that's great. But this is something you want and you don't even know until you see it. And you're like, oh my God, we need to do this at all of them. Channel Fireball being the sole source of GPs in 2018 is not coincidental to why this is finally going to be able to travel easily and to say, well, can you go to Japan? Could you go to Britain? And the answer is yes. It's just logistics. That's really it. There's nothing holding me back. There's nothing holding the art back. It's really just how do we get the art there? How do we pay for it? And that's it. 
And it's really not expensive to ship art in the grand scheme of things. To build an art exhibition at a museum, it's like $100,000 to $250,000 because you have to build it from scratch. For us, we already have a room. We just need to get the walls in, get the art there, and we're done. That is very important what you said, Mike. This process is really about asking the magic community, is this something that you don't know that you want, but you really want? And for many years, prominent members like Brian Rowe and Christine Sprankle and the professor and everyone, we've been talking about getting a magic convention together. And perhaps this is the first wave of bringing other events, artist-specific events, to just large tournaments and things like that. I think it's a great evolution, and this is just the beginning. You're, you're, you're on point on that, and that this is one aspect. I can't bring panels into existence by myself. I can't cosplay by myself. But what I can do is bring art. I can do that. I can easily do that. And then build off of that. For example, art area. What if we had a painting demo? Maybe Howard was there teaching students that would be nearby how to paint something. What if a cosplayer would do a sitting? People bring out their sketchbooks in the art space and they get to paint or draw the planeswalker. So it's practice to a local art school. Maybe, uh, you know, a more casual fans will say, well, I don't want to play in the main event. And uh, drafts are really tough, but I still want to go out and check out some of the other random vendors. Maybe I want to pick up a card or two. Maybe I want to check out an art show for free. You know, it brings these magic community members that should not be there, that just don't engage at the high level magic. But if we can bring these approachable things, a con is... It's really just when you reframe it. We've already had cons before. I mean, I would argue um, we had one at Nebraska not long ago where we had an artist panel. A friend of mine, uh, April King, set up four artists and just asked some questions and recorded it. And that was it. Simple. But having that an overarching theme to say, all right, this is going to be something for the casual fan. We're going to have, I don't know, one of our pros doing a deck tech to teach you about why Delver is so good in the newest build. You know, those sort of really high touch things, because then a casual person could come up and be like, hey, I want to get into modern. Uh, I kind of have the starting of an infect deck. How do I do it? You know, instead of searching a thousand videos, you can have someone up there, explain it, do a Q&A at the end, maybe takes a half an hour to maybe at the end of the day. And then from there, they're like, oh, uh, art show opening at 7 p.m. And then there's a dinner later on. Simple. It's just coordination. And we're kind of poking the bear, trying to get them to move in that direction. And I think they are. And having one GP will only reinforce that. But we have to do it ourselves. You can't just demand things and they can say, well, what do you need? So instead I say, I'm going to do an art show. If it sucks, you tell me. If it's great, tell me. Tell me why. And we're going to have surveys at the end to find out exactly what people want and why they do for the people there. This is gearing up to be a really exciting inaugural event and also an evolution of the magic community. And it's very courageous what you're doing, Mike. I have to really acknowledge you for taking something that you are passionate about, that you have experience with, and taking that leadership role, bringing upon that mantle on the community and saying, hey, you know what, we're going to do this. And, it, and you're, you're right. It is like a concept, right? Uh, right now, it isn't a concept. And um, right now, it's Sunday, the 2nd of April, and you've already got 93 $300. There's 24 days left to go. The goal is $15,000. I'm confident that you'll be able to get there. And I hope that listeners here really think about what Mike said. We're not just crafting a story. We're not just bringing art that could get lost into the forefront. We're not just allowing people to stand in front of the original art, rather on this tiny little box that we see on a piece of cardboard, but really to connect with it, to really have it be a bigger part of our lives. Mike, is there anything else that you would like to say to the listening audience? 
if there's anything else that I would have is to make myself available. I'm quite easy to find online. You write Worthos Mike and I show up. I don't ask people to try to spell my last name. They butcher it. There's four N's. It's tough. I get it. But but really, I, I really do want to hear from people to say, like, I, I want to get into getting art. How do I get a print? What if it's a print that isn't well known, but it's a pet card of mine? How do I do that? Um, and I'm always available for that. And I know I reiterate myself on that in every podcast I'm on. But really, it, it's true. I mean, if there's someone wants to get into framing, I have written articles on framing. If there's people that want to get into their first original, how do they engage that? How do they get an artist to respond after they've emailed them four times? Like those sort of minor that seem, you know, tougher, nerve wracking. Let me know. I'm available for that at all times. I simple message, DM, total my DMs on uh, my direct messages on Twitter are always open. So in case you feel weird about it and don't want to email, feel free. And I'd be happy to talk about it more or explain things more in depth because this is just an introduction to what, what I'm up to uh, for the show. But there's going to be more. There will be much, much more in the coming weeks. And if you have questions, let me know. Magic Art Show is very easy to find. It's at magicartshow.com. It's also on Twitter at Magic Art Show. Also, facebook.com slash magicartshow. You're going to be able to find links to the Kickstarter page where you're going to be able to get the video and also access to images and also the reward levels. So I hope really, listeners, please, if this matters to you and if art matters to you and also if community building matters to you, please contribute to the Magic Art Show. It's going to be going on at GP Vegas, June 14th through 18th. Phenomenal. And I'm looking forward to the show. And listeners, remember, please support Magic Art Show. I'll have links all in the show notes at kitchentablemagic.org. Thank you so much, Mike, for hopping on real quick to share with me. Thanks for having me today and support the show. Thanks to everyone tuning into this week's show. I'm always here to connect with you and answer your questions. Email me, sam at kitchentablemagic.org. Like the show on Facebook at facebook.com slash kitchentablemagicpodcast. Follow me on Twitter at KTM Podcast. The show is on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and mtgcast.com. Coming up in the next episode of Kitchen Table Magic. So I feel incredibly lucky. When I was afforded the opportunity to do Protocol Lumper in 2008, I knew going into it that Randy Bueller was not going to be there. So I knew flying out to Kuala Lumpur that I was going to be on the video coverage. But it was not clear to me until just before that Brian David Marshall was not going to be there because he became super ill and just wasn't allowed to fly. The thing is, if he had been there, I would utterly have been the junior partner. I would have done everything he asked of me willingly and gratefully. Everyone who was watching would have had the opportunity to go, there's BDM, where's Randy? And all I would have been would be not Randy. But instead, because BDM wasn't there, I was with Bill Stark, who again, to my eternal gratitude, said, yes, Rich, a lot that weekend. I clearly remember sitting down with him. I said, look, you're much better than I'm at magic, but performance is what I do. If you let me look after you, we will be fine because I do know how to work an audience. Between us, we're not going to be Randy and BDM, we're going to be something else. But what we will be is the thing we want to be. Just the freedom for that show to become, for want of a better term, mine in execution meant everything. And, you know, here we are almost a decade on. So much of what I do now is behind the scenes. And a lot of that is only because I was accidentally afforded the opportunity 
I was handed the keys to the Porsche, you know, is still how it feels. And I, I do feel incredibly lucky for that. That was Rich Hagen, official Magic commentator and host, telling us about his first time on the big stage. Rich has a background in performance, stage acting, broadcasting, and great puns. I'm really looking forward to sharing my Mythic Rare interview with Rich Hagen. It's the second installment in my four-part series with the Magic Coverage team. Join me and Rich Hagen next time on Kitchen Table Magic. 